take walks at night, you know. I, I always have. And where I live now, I always go out with a knife, armed, and visibly, so people see that you're armed. I have everybody there is like that. It's just, a, it's a frightening place. Destruction. We were scared. <laughs> with all the ideas of the murders and uh, all this stuff. Last night, I said at the end of the show that we were going to be doing something tonight called Punk Rock, which I'm sure prompted the following telegram. Mr. Bob Alexander. It's a doctor. He's with the Good City Rock Show on WBAI Radio FM in New York City. This is Dear Tom. Punk Rock is a part of a whole new music movement, which is called New Wave. The Ramones are punk. Patti Smith is New Wave. Destruction. The Dead Boys are punk. And Uncle Son is New Wave. The major ingredient, he says, common to all these groups. What kind of a fool? Do you think I am? There's a new sincerity and earthiness. And this gets into uh, urination and beating people up and bloody noses and stuff like that. Do you think I could be happy with this? The ruling symbol of the novel that I'm writing is a, is a cross with two transepts. Um, the main beam of the cross is a symbol of a bipolar ambiguity of motivation and the two transepts are also symbols of more philosophic ambiguity one ambiguity of imminence and transcendence insofar as origin of behavior is concerned and the other a similar ambiguity insofar as consequence of behavior is concerned What are you trying to do? Change it. Make an impact. On what? Oh, just on society or just make an impact, an artistic impact. Check the dinner 597. As we approach the end of 2021 and episode 600, we have three time spanning flicks. First, a crime happens backstage at a musical in Murder at the Valleys. Next, punk rockers try to navigate the oppressive 80s in SLC Punk. Finally, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but different in Skin Deep. Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 597. This is the podcast where each week we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in L.A. This week, we each just pick a random movie that we wanted to watch, and we end up with Murder at the Vanities from 1934, SLC Punk from 1998, and Skin Deep from 2004. But first, gentlemen... How you doing this week? I'm doing good, you know, having a yeah. nice little week, you know, very relaxing week. 
Yeah. It's your last week of your 30s. You better enjoy it. After this, you're middle-aged forever. Well, then that... you're elderly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll probably be middle-aged forever. You know, I, 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 Judging from some of the movies we'll be talking about later, I don't know if I can ever fully be a grandpa or elderly. <laughs> well, so. it'll happen before you know it. You'll say well, something and a, a little boy will ask, what, what's a Sega CD? And then all of a sudden you'll look around and you're in like a wheelchair with an oxygen tank and you go, my life. <laughs> <laughs> all the TVs around me will be playing Murder at the Vanities. And then and then that's the moment I will appreciate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm old. I'm old now. Or in a couple hours I'll be old. It's nice for the actual, you know, official age to finally catch up to how you've been feeling for all these years anyways, right? (laughs) That's true. Let's let's make it official, you know? That's true. I have been middle-aged and and grumpy and crotchety for for about 15 years now. So this this actually kind of works out. You're right. You want to talk middle-aged and, and, you know, uh, kind of grandpa-ish? I I watched Ghost this week on HBO Max. I, I took time out of my life to... Sit down and and party with uh with a dead Swayze and in ghost. That's You're crazy where I'm at. For Swayze. I am crazy for Swayze. You guys <laughs> yeah, well, into the Swayze factor? Yeah, you know it's been a while since I've seen Ghost. I used to love it as, as a boy because they played it. I feel like incessantly on HBO when yeah. I was coming up as a youngster, and um, you know I, I thought it was fine at the time. I mean. Love the Swayze, love Demi Moore, love Whoopi Goldberg. She won the Oscar for that performance. Uh, love uh, that one guy that plays Mr. Vargas in Fast Times at Ridgemont High as the ghost that teaches Patrick Swayze how to move things in the real world. Yeah, Vince Chevelli <laughs> as the super ghost, who I feel like his arc is like totally unresolved. Like that was the only bummer about rewatching this because I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. You know, I also watched it a million times on HBO. And I always loved that character. I mean, he he really sticks in your mind for a character who, you know, probably has two minutes of total screen time. But they do this thing where, you know, they set up that he's like really conflicted and kind of in pain and he just runs off during a scene. And it feels like, okay, Swayze at some point is going to link up back with this guy and help him through his thing. Nope. That's the last time you see him in the movie. It's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, he flew too close to the sun. I guess so. But but I feel like I, mm-hmm. you know, I undervalued Swayze as a kid. Uh, maybe it was because my sister was was always watching Dirty Dancing or, or I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not even sure why. But I, I, you know, watching him now as an adult, I'm like, I'm kind of charmed by the guy. I think he's got a winning personality, this Swayze. Oh, yeah. The, you know, like I said, the, the nation didn't go crazy for Swayze for nothing. I mean, yeah, I think uh, like a lot of kids, young men. Our age, probably, yeah, I wrote him off because of Dirty Dancing and it's like heartthrob status. But yeah, he had some, I mean, f- come on, fucking Roadhouse, classic film. Yeah, that that's one that I have not gone back to as an adult. And I'm, and I'm curious because I, I actually did go back to Dirty Dancing as an adult, kind of liked it. So I'm, I'm very open to it. Point Break, come on. Oh, Point Break's great. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, speaking of old, uh, old men events, I, I had probably as classic of an old man weekend as possible. I went to a pinball expo here in Cincinnati, Pincinnati as it's known. And, uh, for three days straight played uh, pinball in a holiday Inn uh, convention hall with a bunch of other old, old men. 
but yeah, it's a lot of fun. They, this is the third year they did it. Obviously, they didn't do it last year because of COVID. Uh, but uh, you know, they bring a bunch of pinball machines uh, from all eras. You know, brand new, hot, hot off the press <laughs> pinball machines. One moment, please. Oh, here, here, go. Join our regularly scheduled program, already in progress. Hopefully, my computer doesn't go crazy. But yeah, so it was me and a bunch of uh, you know old white dudes in a Holiday Inn convention hall playing a classic. Well, new and old pinball machines, hot, new ones hot off the presses, uh, ones from the classic you know eighties and nineties era plus seventies ones, and uh, some going all the way back to the uh, the olden days before. They even had flippers, so <laughs> it was fun. Um, you know, it's always fun to play a bunch of different pinball machines. Got to see some cool custom cabinets. A guy had a Billy Madison custom pinball machine that he had made out of an old party animal machine, but uh, did a really good job of squeezing a lot of cool <laughs> Billy Madison references in there. Um, but yeah, it was a good time. Let me ask you this, Kevin Moss. When you're driving to a pinball bacchanal, um, do you have a pinball-themed playlist that, that you're blaring out your car windows? You know, any Tommy, any any kind of pinball-related novelty songs from the '50s or anything? You know, that's a good question. There, I mean, obviously, yeah, Pinball Wizard is the obvious choice, but the secret is amongst pinball people, pinball people hate that song because it's the really? only pinball song that people know, and so Played of course. Out. <laughs> yeah, it's played out. It's you know, but uh, there's yeah, there's there's actually like a surprising amount of old like country songs from like the fifties about pinball, like back when it was a gambling thing uh, that people would do in the in bars. Yeah, you know, okay. Hill, hillbillies love that shit. So there's a lot of songs about you know losing your ass on the pinball machine and whatnot. That's like but, how when I was growing up, there was all those country songs about Kino. Exactly. It was the keynote of its time. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, it was, uh, but yeah, it was, it's funny too, because you start to realize, I mean, obviously this is the case with all, you know, nerd conventions, whether it's horror or comic books or otherwise, but especially when it comes to pinball, because it is a, you know, a, a competitive game by nature. There are some nerds out there that take pinball way too seriously. And how does that manifest? Just getting like real intense playing pinball. Okay. What, you know, while they play. 
yeah, you know, just the the real look of determination, the slapping of the machine really hard, the 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 audible you know showing of frustration when they when the ball drains and stuff like like take it easy, dude. We're we're just here to have fun. You Some guys are like really getting out their aggression on that pinball machine. It feels like you didn't witness any patrons of this convention like go up to a pinball table owner and like harangue him for you know like the the restoration paint being the wrong color on the left <laughs> flipper or something like this. I'm sure stuff like that happens. I mean, it, it because yeah, I mean, it, it is all like it's owners of pinball machines that bring their collection and most of them are for sale. Like they're, you know, trying to, you know, they're free to play, but you know, ideally maybe they'll sell one of these things. And then of course there's like the professional people that, you know, deal them for a living. And then obviously there's some like reps from, like Stern Pinball and some of the smaller pinball companies that are trying to like you know advertise their latest and greatest uh, machines. So there is a, a bit of that where people are trying to sell stuff and like you know there's some haggling and where like you said like people are like well that bumper up there is a little uh, off. That's going to take at least a hundred off the price, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. So. Now, what about digital pinball? Is that permitted at this kind of an exhibition or or that's strictly taboo? Well, it's funny because the the guy that um, like one of the big sponsors of this is a, a place called Pinball Garage, which is a place in Hamilton, Ohio that I go, which is a really cool pinball bar. Uh, but the guy that owns it is like one of the creators of um, digital pinball. Like he has a company that um, that sells like these digital pinball cabinets. They're like basically like multi-cades, but um, you know, it's like a pinball like basically just like a flat screen tv instead of a pinball surface yeah and so you can play various tables and, and i've played them before but the funny thing is about it is like even though this guy that's his like business his bread and butter he keeps it very separate from the real pinball like there's no digital machines in his his pinball garage there are no digital machines at this convention i think they understand that like pinball purists they don't like the digital shit i think that's but he knows that he can make money off it selling it to, you know, like, you know, places that want like a yeah. digital pinball machine in their bar or restaurant or something. I, I actually yeah. wonder if like Las Vegas might have those tucked away in, in one of the smaller casinos or something like I, I could see that working there, you know. Yeah, but I think pinball purists frown upon it because I think one of the main things that people like about pinball is that tactile yeah. you know, real life feel to it. And as much as you can replicate it in the digital world on a screen and they do add things like little rumble packs and stuff to try to get the feel as close as possible. It's, it's still never going to be the same. Yeah. I would like to go back to something you mentioned. How did pinball work before flippers? Well, but before flippers, it was a purely game of chance where it was like you just shot the ball up with the plunger. It was basically like pachinko. It would just like bounce around various pins and then land in a hole, a random hole with a different point level assigned to it. And it and that's predominantly when it was like a gambling thing. So like you would just shoot three balls with your fingers crossed and hope to get a higher score than your buddy. And then your buddy would owe you, you know, five bucks if you beat him. <laughs> Okay, I like it's kind of like a mini ski ball, kind of. It sounds like I'm into it. Yeah, but I mean, like I said, there's like almost no skill involved. It was mostly just a game of pure chance. Maybe uh, a, yeah. good, a good tilt might get you an advantage. 
Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because that's, I mean, pinball was illegal for many years up until like the mid seventies <laughs> because of its gambling connotations. And the only way, reason that it was made legal again is because they were able to prove that with the flippers and everything, now it was a game of skill rather than a game of chance. So. Okay. Oh, and then the guy, the guys who grew up playing without flippers, when the new generation who used flippers came around, did they call them flipper babies? <laughs> <laughs> they did. Okay. And that, that makes sense. And that's, and that's who's the best Bowman of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's still what they call women at these uh, conventions. <laughs> oh, look at these flipper babies. <laughs> all right. That makes sense. That makes sense. I like that. But yeah, no, it was, it was a good time. If you like, uh, but yeah, after because uh, I I went all all three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and after three days of pinballing, I'm I'm exhausted. I feel like I've I'm pinned out for a while. But yeah, until until next time, next time until, you see one, it'll all you'll, your energy will come back. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, no no voicemails this week. Nobody wanted to wish you happy birthday, Parker. I hate to tell you this, but uh, our fans have abandoned you. Well, it's what I get for talking all that shit about Goodfellas, I guess. <laughs> no, you know, someone brought up something in the Discord, and I I think it's interesting. I, I, they were musing whether or not the, the Discord might be uh, cutting into our voicemails, because people can connect with us directly and chat about any manner of things in the Discord. Maybe it's uh, people that would have normally called in, now just getting their voice heard on the Discord. What do you think? I think that's possible. Yeah, I did, like when they first posed that question, I was like, "Oh well, not enough time has passed to really tell." But perhaps it seems it seems uh, like there is some correlation. Well, what I say is get the best of both worlds. Hit us up on the Discord, chat with us on a regular basis, and let your voice be heard by giving us a call on the Junk for Dinner voicemail line at three four seven seven four six Junk. That's three four seven seven four six five eight six five. We love interacting with you on the Discord, but we want to hear the sweet, sweet voices of yours. We want to get to know you as a person, not just a screen name. Peekaboo, <laughs> you fucks you. That's yeah. That's what you need to say. Call us up and say peekaboo, you fucks you. <laughs> I'll I'll figure out how to get voicemails from the Discord. I think that that would be the easiest possible way to to fix everything. I know that there's a way, but I'm I'm or, 40 now. I don't know how Discord works. I, yeah. Or just find get get everybody's phone number in the Discord, and then we'll just call random people on the show. <laughs> That's actually a really good idea. We should bug, yeah. Bug instead people of, during dinner. Instead of people. <laughs> instead of people calling us, we're going to call them. Exactly. I got a movie recommendation for you, the fallen one. How about that? Boo, you fucks you. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you an assignment for a movie to watch. <laughs> but yes, please give us a call. We're very lonely and we need we need to hear the sound of other human voices. If it's just Parker and Sean and I, we're gonna go nuts. We need to know that there's somebody else out there. They think you went batso. I would have gone batso. All right, that being said, let's get into some nerd news. From the global resources of junk food dinner worldwide, it's time for Nerd News. Uh, The first piece of nerd news that I have is not too long ago on the show, uh, we finally got around to watching Brian Trenchard-Smith's classic Australian slash american 
Stunt Extravaganza, Stunt Rock from 1979, a movie that features uh, stunts by the great Australian stuntman Grant Page and music by the often forgotten band that mixed heavy metal and magic, Sorcery. Um, And I remember when we watched it for the show, I think at least a couple of us uh, mused that we would love if this had a nice uh, 4K restoration because uh, while it's fun, the version that's out there on DVD right now is not the best and it's hard to find and it's hard to get your hands on. Uh, But that's going to all change here soon as uh, uh, there is a new 4K restoration that was completed by Umbrella Entertainment, a uh, overseas DVD company. They're going to be releasing Stunt Rock so you can import it that way if you like or you can wait until our good friend Kino Lorber will release it here in the United States on their label. Um, so I no word on what special features uh, will be on this, if any, but the new 4K restoration of Stunt Rock coming uh, outside the U.S. from Umbrella Entertainment and inside the U.S. from Kino Lorber. This is day one buy for me, but what do you guys think? Are you excited about this new release of Stunt Rock? Hell yeah, this is great news. You know, now when I project stunt rock over whatever rock band I'm going to see, you know, with a portable projector that I intend to bring to the concert, uh, it's going to (laughs) be, you know, in that much higher def. So uh, very exciting news for me and all the other patrons of said concert. Um, As mentioned, when we talked about that movie, there's this musician that I like a lot named Stunt Rock. And I feel like this movie getting put out there with a lot of pixels will make it harder for me to Google him and not get this movie. So I'm not, I'm actually not into this. I would like the hell out of here. I would like this movie to be obscure as obscure as possible so that I can just find the musician. I like by no, (laughs) my mistake. If you do find a stunt rock shirt for the movie that I would buy, I've got a stunt rock shirt of the guy. Oh, but, I want the movie. Well, I'll send you the shirt of the guy. No, no, no. And then you can just say it's about the movie. Like if somebody asks, I'll be like, oh, you like that movie? You'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah, I do. I got the shirt, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> It'll work. All, right. All right, fair enough. Well, tell me if this is fair enough for you. Okay. Uh, I think we talked about this a little bit in the in the chat, but not on the show. But there's that new Renfield movie that's coming out with Nicolas Cage. It's a Dracula. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Nicolas Cage is Dracula. <laughs> Finally. This is about the fifth time Nicolas Cage has played a Dracula, I think. So he's uh, he's going to be in this Dracula movie. But this uh, time he's a Universal Pictures Dracula. Oh, this is like an official Dracula. Yeah, this Dracula is, a fi- is official. He is Universal. So, And he's got uh, the Bram Stoker seal of approval. That is true. Um. They asked Bram so, Stoker from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> they did a seance to, to get yeah. involved. Apparently Bram Stoker's a big Wild at Heart fan. He said, ah, sure. <laughs> uh, so we got Nicolas Cage. He's Dracula. Nicholas Holt from Mad Max Fury Road. He's going to be Renfield. Uh, this apparently will kind of be focused on Renfield. Uh, Aquafina of the new Shang-Chi movie is going to be in it. Which is fitting because she has the voice of a scary monster. <laughs> yeah, who's she going to play? <laughs> I don't know, a werewolf or something? I don't know. <laughs> um, and 
This is actually being produced by Robert Kirkman, who created The Walking Dead and Invincible, and will be written by Ryan Ridley, who is a guy I like. He's a co-host of the Grandma's Virginity podcast, which is the greatest podcast of all time. And he was a former writer on like Community and Rick and Morty and stuff like that. Oh, um, no. Oh, no. Yeah, which, yeah, does not lend itself to Dracula's. Like, it seems like this is just like all this random shit. Like, it, it doesn't even seem like real news. Like, it just seems like... I don't know, throwing darts at the wall and like landing on a bunch of different things. So, uh, yeah, none of this stuff seems to go together, but I'm in, I'm slightly intrigued about this. Uh, nonetheless, okay. what do you guys think about all this going, goings on? Yeah. Like you, I mean, I, I, I gotta agree. I mean, it sounds like a bunch of shit being thrown together <laughs> and being like, let's see, let's see what works. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I gotta wait. I gotta wait till I see like at least a trailer or something before I make a decision. But uh, right now I'm skeptical. It sounds like sounds like a weird combination. Yeah, I, I did not like that Tom Cruise mummy. I did not like that Liz Moss Invisible Man, uh, and I probably won't like this Nick Cage Dracula. Although on the surface, like I should like a Nick Cage Dracula. I, I like the guy, and I think he makes a, for a fun vampire. Um, but yeah, like this, the, the rest of all this, uh, you know, it, it just sounds like it's going to be some goofy horse shit <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. I'm actually still at the stage, you know, where I, I don't really know who Aquafina is, you know, like, like I'm an out of touch old man. And so like, I'm still at she's the stage. N- she's Nora from Queens. I don't know what that is. I'm, I'm just at the stage where I'm just still annoyed that that's an actual person's name. Uh, and that's really all I know about her. <laughs> it is weird. Cause like, she's like, she had like Oscar buzz for a movie she did. And now she's in Shang-Chi, which is like one of the biggest movies of the year. You would think she would drop her novelty YouTube rapper name, Aquafina at some point and just like go by her normal name. But it has not happened yet. And it's very confusing to me. Yeah. I respect that. Yeah. Maybe like if I'm Dr. Be- Demento was like getting Oscar buzz. Well, I'm sure there were some olds like us saying, like, that guy from Boys in the Hood should change his name from Ice Cube. That's just silly. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like Aquafina is like so, it's like a parody. It's like a, it's yeah, a, and, a little bit different than that. It's like, well, and, and also when it's spoken, it's not even a parody. You know, like, so you're just <laughs> yeah, giving somebody yeah. free advertising all day long. It's very weird. Yeah, that is true. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. But what do you guys think about Renfield, the character? We've talked about a lot of Dracula's on the show. Um, do you guys like Renfield, the the ghoulish manservant of Dracula? He's he's in some of the movies and some of the stories and not in others. It seems like kind of people pick and choose when they want to use him. But I think he's a cool character. What do you guys think? Yeah, man. I mean, he's he's eating bugs. He's he's all <laughs> grimy looking. Uh, who would not be a fan of that that ghoulish man? Yeah, I would say Renfield's probably the best part of the original, um, you know, uh, Todd Browning Dracula. Yeah, yeah. He's good in the, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola one, too. Isn't he like Tom Waits in that one? Yeah, Tom oh, yeah. Waits. Um, but yeah, Dwight Fry is the original. He's He's awesome. He also plays the original, not Igor, but the... I think his name's Fritz, the uh, the original, you know, uh, henchman to Doctor Frankenstein in the first one too. 
Ah, I like that guy then. Yeah, he's a badass. Yeah, I like those guys. <laughs> exactly. But yes, Tom Waits was Renfield. Also, Klaus Kinski played Renfield one time. Okay. Sounds like we got a Renfield theme show at Bruin. Well, that, that would just be a Dracula theme show, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, now that you say it, if there is a Renfield spinoff movie, which I feel like, you know, in the long history of movies, somebody probably got around to that by now, right? Uh, that'd be cool. I'd, I'd probably watch that, see what he's up to outside the castle, you know? Yeah, I bet someone has done that. Sort of like a, a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead sort of a take on him. Yeah, exactly. Well, I got a uh, I got a Blu-ray pick I wanted to um, shout out this week for my uh, my nerd news. Uh, and this one is a long time coming to high def. I, I can't believe it's taken this long. Uh, the 1996 feature film Beavis and Butthead Do America finally hit in Blu-ray. Uh, via Paramount, and actually it's kind of at the nice price currently of 15 bucks. Um, this is a movie that I rewatched about a year ago or so, and at that time I, I really could have used these pixels, to be honest with you, because it's a lot of fun, but I was like, this, you know, it doesn't look as good as it could have. Uh, the Blu-ray is going to be packed with special features. It's got an audio commentary from Mike Judge and Yvette Kaplan. Um, it's got like a retrospective documentary Uh, It's got like a special feature on the music, like the composer and Mike Judge talking about the score of the thing um, and all kinds of other little uh, tidbits. So, again, you know, uh, Kevin, you you were mentioning uh, day one buy for Stunt Rock. Uh, I think I'm going to be ordering this, you know, after we hang up this call because I love this movie. Uh, I would love to hear that commentary with Mike Judge and stare at this, you know, all clean and crisp looking while I do it. So, uh, are you guys excited for Beavis and Butthead do do America? Yeah, I am for sure. I love Beavis and Butthead. Big fan. Um, I, you know, I, that hit me at the exact right time. Like Beavis and Butthead came out right at the time that I was a, you know, a pimply faced preteen, and I was like, this is this is for me. Speaking right to me, I watch MTV all day. I I like to insult my friends. Um, so yeah, I love Beavis and Butthead. I loved when this movie came out. I saw it in the theater first week it came out. It has Rob Zombie's greatest, um, contribution to film ever on it, which is the, uh, the peyote trip scene that he animated, or at least contributed the concept art for, which I loved. Um, yeah, like you said, the soundtrack is cool. Um, it's got a lot of cool celebrity cameo voices in there. Bruce Willis, Demi Moore, Dave Letterman. Dave Letterman, who was also a huge Beavis and Butthead fan. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I'll definitely eventually pick this up, add this to my collection. Because, yeah, this is a good one. It's, it's one you want to have around. You know, I, and God, you know, I, I can't stress enough. I love, you know, they've got the DVDs of Beavis and Butthead out, and it's great. You know, the animation, the stories were always very funny and stuff, but the fact that it doesn't have the videos is such a bummer. Fortunately, there's a, a, most of the videos are on youtube the music video portion and and i get it obviously they could never license all those music videos and songs for a dvd but man that was that was really the meat and potatoes of that show so it sucks that they're not on the dvd so there is a a compilation that somebody put together on youtube that is like six hours of just the videos you know with the butthead commentary and i've i've jammed out to that a lot over this you know past couple years and for sure 
I guess you also. Know, oh, go ahead. Well, and watching those, you realize like how many cool, weird bands. You, I, at least for me, I got turned on to because of using Butthead, because they would play some fucking really strange v- videos that they wouldn't normally play during like regular MTV, unless you're watching like, you know, 120 minutes or Headbangers Ball or something. But like they play, but they would play Beavis and Butthead like, you know, all the time, like during the day and like they would rerun episodes over and over again. So stuff like Ween and like Guar and like the Cramps and the Butthole Surfers and Reverend Horton Heat and stuff like that would get like airplay that they would never have gotten on MTV otherwise. And I think turned a lot of people on to like a lot of weirdo bands. So yeah, yeah, totally. And I think I saw recently that um, there's going to be a, a new Beavis and Butthead thing coming to Paramount Plus. I'm not sure if it's a feature or a series, or um, I'm guessing probably music videos won't be a part of it anymore. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I didn't I didn't watch that the rehash version. You know, there was like a no. reboot of this. Like 10, I saw a little 15. bit of it. Did that have videos? It, it did, right? Well, they would watch like clips of like Teen Mom and like. <laughs> Yeah. 16 and pregnant which i thought was kind of odd well that's weird and and yeah. no music not that i remember yeah oh, i don't think weird. it had music the script is just stuff that they owned you know right like mtv owned the rights to right. so they just wanted to use that yeah the scripted stuff on that reboot was really good though like the actual yeah. segments of of those guys having their adventures was really funny right and you know obviously mike judge is still does good stuff i again i can't recommend enough that that show that he did for cinemax tales from the tour bus that's like some of my favorite stuff of of recent years i gotta watch that yeah silicon valley is funny i only watched the first season but it was really good i'll be honest with you i i i mean i i like a lot of the stuff that he's done subsequently like i think king of the hill is okay i liked extract okay i like silicon the first season of silicon valley okay but man, Beavis and Butthead has a, a like a real special place in my heart. Yeah, totally, I agree. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Well, on the subject of DVDs and Blu-rays, there's a. Uh, I just wanted to mention three of them real quick that are coming out this week, um, just because these caught my eye and I thought these were all kind of interesting. Uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, I guess specifically, is releasing a new uh, 4K Ultra HD of Krampus, the 2015 uh, horror movie um, directed by Michael Doherty of Trick or Treat. Uh, but what's interesting about this is that it's the naughty cut, whatever that means. It's an unrated director's cut of the movie. I don't know what all that what that means, what we're going to get with it, if we're going to have, you know, like gingerbread men, like, you know, having anal sex with one another. Or, um, who knows what could be in this naughty cut. Uh, but... I like the idea uh, because I, I think this movie, I think, I don't know. I, I don't, we, we've talked about it on the show. I think this movie is good. Um, I remember seeing it in the theater. I think it makes for a fun uh, Christmas horror watch. And I like Michael Doherty's style. So I don't know. Would you guys be interested to check out a 102 minute director's naughty cut of Krampus now out on 4k? How, how much longer is that? Do we know what the original was? I don't know. It I, probably not that much longer. Probably. 10 minutes at most i'm interested i mean i like you i enjoyed the original i I guess i felt like it did feel a little bit like it was cut down for pg-13 um but it was still fun and still had that kind of michael doherty sense so um yeah there's not a whole lot of 
great horror movies for Christmas time. Like there's a lot of pretty good ones. And then, I mean, you got black Christmas and a couple that are just insanely great, but um, there's not a ton. So it's always good to have another one. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm down to rewatch this. Parker Sorry, and, and go my ahead. Skype, my Skype was closing up. So I, I missed a bit of what we were talking about. It crashed again. Oh, did the, do you think the call was preserved? It says it's still recording. So perhaps because the call was still going on because you two were still together, it just kept everything going. I guess we'll see. I guess we will see. (laughs) That's the way it seems. I I don't know. So, uh, so what were we talking about? What's going on? Krampus, the naughty cut. Yeah. Oh, Krampus. Yeah. No, Krampus has burned me too hard. I'm I'm not going to go back to that movie. I didn't care for it. Hmm, well, that's a shame. Yeah, I know. Yeah, shame. people. I know people seem to like it. I don't know. It just didn't didn't do much for me. So, although one of yes. the co-hosts, one of the co-hosts of the Grandma's Virginity podcast, Justin Roiland, voiced uh, the oh, Ginger your Heroes. Kid. Yeah, my heroes. He uh, did the voices for the Gingerbread Men. So maybe I sh- I should read. Rewatch that movie. I, I didn't know that at the time. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, two other movies I just wanted to uh, mention real quick getting a Blu ray release Harold and Maude. Paramount Pictures is putting out uh, this as part of their Paramount Presents uh, series where they release their classic titles with nice slip covers. And um, I don't know if they really add any special features or anything, but Harold and Maude classic movie definitely worth having in your collection and the other one is angels with dirty faces the classic 1938 james cagney pat o'brien uh movie i think that's the one that essentially is being parodied in home alone where kevin McAllister is watching angels i think it's called angels with dirty wings or something um but yeah this is a newly scanned 4k version being released by the warner archive collection if you like james cagney you know cagneying it up in prison um you know what do you what do you say? I, I don't know. That's a bad James Cagney. <laughs> I do uh, like James Cagney, but but I haven't seen this one yet, surprisingly. Yeah. And even though I think this is one of his, you know, uh, most famous uh, roles. Um, so yeah, it's cool that this is coming out. Harold and Maude. I'm, I'm guessing this is not the Blu-ray debut. I'm I'm sure it's it's had a disc before, right? But um, I I love that movie, and and I don't think that I own it on Blu-ray. So Criterion put it out. Uh, back in 2012, but it's since gone out of print. And now the rights are back with Paramount. So if you didn't snap up the Criterion Blu-ray of Harold and Mod, now's your chance to own it without paying, you know, 120 bucks for it on eBay. Yeah. Having that in your collection is a good way to impress uh, ladies, probably. <laughs> I've never met a lady who would, like didn't love that movie. No, Which is reasonable. Lady? No, I mean, it's a very good movie. Everybody should love it, but it's like a defining movie for a lot of the ladies I've known. Like how UHF is for us, us boys. <laughs> I know plenty of ladies that like UHF too. Yeah. I think, oh. you know, Beavis and Butthead probably would have been the better example and, you know, would, would have tied back to what we were just talking about. Well, I really blew it. Edit, editing. Yeah. If you want to do a retake right now. <laughs> yes. A, a Beavis and Butthead is a, is a boy movie like that. Just edit that in. I can't use that. That's unusable. That's a bad take. I don't know. I'm not a good actor. Movies are not gender specific. Everyone can enjoy them. 
I'm of course they can. I'm just saying I nine out of the ten girls I've met in my life really loved that movie and it was like a big deal for them. That's all I'm saying. Well, yeah. I guess I'm let's not, see if we can figure out what gender is supposed to enjoy the next movie on the show. I'll tell you. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> we're gonna take a break. We're gonna Parker's gonna meet with HR for a little bit and figure this out. But uh when we come back <laughs> We are going to get into our first movie of the evening, and that is Murder at the Vanities uh, from 1934. So stick around. Harold and Maude is like the girl version of Fight Club. That's all I'm trying to say. How dare you? Who's the best bowman of all time? (laughs) Have you ever had a dream that... That you um you had you you would you could you do you would you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything. Oh, Jay, I have to call today. You call now. I'll call now. You call now. I'll call now. You call now. I'll call today. Imagine your teenager decides to live a clean life. No alcohol, no smoking, no sex or drugs, and maybe even becomes a vegetarian. Sounds great, doesn't it? Well, for most kids who adhere to a lifestyle they call straight edge, it is. But for some kids, they've taken it too far, way too far, with deadly results. Now he's done. You remember what you said? Get out of life. I took my right. Would you be that? Yeah, get out if you've ever seen a slide of a blood sample where the blood cells are just sort of bouncing off of one another and it's just uh, kind of complete chaos there's no real order to it there's a lot of uh, energy and aggression in the music it's a positive way to get out your aggression. Dateline the mid-80s, bands like Minor Threat were giving birth to straight-edge music. It was designed to be played fast and heard loud. Teenagers were mesmerized by the music and its message. And the kids would go to watch them at different bars and clubs where they couldn't actually purchase alcohol. They would mark a black X on the kids' hands which would tell the bartenders that they couldn't drink alcohol. And the kids would go in and watch the bands. They took on the name Straight Edge. And they made the X that was being marked on the back of their hands as their symbol. Today, Straight Edge is bigger than ever. Three of the biggest bands talk to us about the movement. Battery is a Straight Edge band. Straight Edge is a lifetime commitment. And we don't drink, we don't smoke, don't do drugs. And also a part of it is, you know, avoiding promiscuous sexual behavior you can't get an erection i think that the only place i've ever heard of there being some sort of straight edge violent gang is um in salt lake city salt lake city where straight edge became hate edge right when i rolled in it felt really crazy but it was definitely a lot different vibe than i've ever been exposed to and what you sensed was rage the victims anyone who disagreed with the so-called poison-free lifestyle of straight edge hate edge uh takes straight edge a step further they walk by they might see some guy uh smoking a cigarette at a show outside and they'll tell him to put it out and uh if they if he doesn't they will uh 
They'll beat him up, oftentimes. There were even wilder reports, like skateboarding gangs of hate edgers terrorizing pregnant women for smoking and vandalizing merchants whose products they dislike. It all led up to an incident that shocked the city. I mean, they don't like people who drink, and it's probably pretty apparent that I was drunk, but maybe I shouldn't have been smoking the joint. I'm sure, you know, I shouldn't have, but... These guys threw him to the ground and proceeded to start to try and carve an X into his back. I mean, they have no right to carve me up like a turkey or something, you know. Actually, these kids had more respect for the turkey. Some became vegans, hardcore vegetarians, and turned their rage toward protecting all animals. And then uh, when they got into that, then they started into even more extreme animal rights type of activities. Um, but it led to them getting involved in uh, illegal and lawful acts of vandalism, of uh, bombings, arsons, that type of activities. There are instances where uh, you know, education, peaceful protest, and trying to change things uh, through legal means have obviously been tried and, and tested to the limit, and they're ineffective. Once again, the music was part of the movement. Listen to Ultra Militants by Earth Crisis. The hardline vegan zeroed in on a target, the fur industry in and around Salt Lake City. Probably the first ranch that was hit was our research ranch. It was hit in uh, June 97. Uh, about a month later, there was three or 4,000 mink re released at uh, a couple of our ranches. Animals are rescued. It's a beautiful thing. And the people who do it should be recognized for the heroes that they truly are. picture here is uh, what happens when they go out and release these minks. Um, they end up getting out, they get on the road, cars run over them. But releasing minks was just the beginning. Violent action was the next step. Target, the Fur Breeders Co-op, a major feeding and research facility for the mink trade. The perpetrators, Josh Ellerman, Adam Troy Peace, and three other straight edgers. Their weapons, five well-placed pipe bombs. The devastation and the fire was very serious. The fact that they would plant pipe bombs is a very violent and terrorist type act. Now what's the matter with you, man? I am personally straight edge. Obviously, I would consider myself a revolutionary. At the Fur Breeders Co-op bombing, the office building in the, uh, I do believe, five or six of the meat trucks got blown up. You dirty motherfucker. Were you involved with that? Um, yes, I was. You dirty motherfucker. On Halloween 98, straight edge violence in Salt Lake City reached the point of no return. I was disgusted. I couldn't believe it. It makes me question why I'm even doing this, why I'm even a part of this. It blows my mind that somebody could take straight edge and turn it into that. We saw how Josh Ellerman was brought to justice for his role in the fur breeders bombing. But there are a couple of other straight edgers who have crossed the line. Adam Troy Peace and James Ray Blackman are hardline straight edge vegans on the run for crimes committed in Salt Lake City. Peace is wanted as a co-conspirator in the Fur Breeders co-op bombing. Blackman is facing up to 15 years in prison for crimes against Utah mink farmers. Today is his birthday. If you've seen James Blackman or Adam Troy Peace, call 1-800-CRIME-TV.
them gather round, stop raving about your men. And let me tell you how sweet mine is, though he commits a sin. Cause when my baby makes love to me, it's murder. Now when he turtle doves me, that's murder. Now when he feels temperamental, I just let him have his way. I can only feed him twice a week, he's a member of the PWA. Now when my baby caresses me, it's murder. But if he ever dispossess me, I will commit murder. Now if I tell him that he's not mine, he turns into Frankenstein, makes shivers run up and down my spine. That's murder. Your nation's cows out of work? Yeah. They're happy to do it. Happy to take a little bit of a vacation from you sucking on their teeth like some sort of weirdo. I'm going to suck on those teeth. Mm. I'm gonna suck on those teeth. Now when my baby makes love to me, it's murder. Now when he turns and does me, that's murder. Now when he feels temperamental, I just let him have his way. You know, he ain't afraid of the big bad wolf, I found that out today. Now when my baby caresses me, it's murder. But if he ever dispossess me, I will commit murder. Now he drinks liquor and everything. He's a guy that's got that swing. But when he shakes that thing, that's murder. That overlooks the avenue. Mr. Lander and Miss Ware are going to get married. It's a romantic comedy. Will they settle down to happy marriages? It's a musical. You tell that story to anybody, and I'll see that you never tell anybody anything again. It's a mystery. What's that? Somebody pushed this into her heart. What do you mean? Uh, you're putting on a good act, Landa. She's dead. It's an extravaganza. She's been furious all week. Account of Miss Ware getting the lead in the show. I told you not to let strangers meddle in your private affairs. And any accidents that happen after tonight happen to Mr. and Mrs. Landa. Hey, Bill, tell me something. How'd you like the show, huh? Hey, do you want my honest opinion? Yeah. A classic with all the right ingredients. Murder at the Vanities. All right, welcome back to Junk Food Dinner, the first movie on the show tonight. It's going to be Murder at the Vanities, uh, which is a 1934 American pre-code musical film. And for my money, I think 1934 is becoming... Maybe my favorite year in American cinema, um, you know, at least based on some of the stuff I've, I've been watching so far this year. Uh, it turns out this country was kind of unhinged in 1934. Um, if you if you look at history, you know, prohibition had just ended. 
uh, the year prior in 1933. Uh, the Hayes Code wouldn't really be enforced until late 1934. Uh, marijuana was still legal and socially acceptable, uh, you know, and combined that with, uh, you know, booze being legal now and jazz music kind of uh, being a booming nightclub sensation. It turns out, you know, things were getting pretty wild. Um, this movie in particular, I think, might be one of the crazier movies to come out in that year. But I, you know, I, I hold out hope that there are other movies out there like this, because um, I really like this thing. Um, well, you know, it's not like this, but you know what else is a wild 1934 movie? What's that? The Black Cat. Oh, I get to see it. I still have not seen it. But yeah, it's got, you know, Karloff and Lugosi. Satanism. The works. It was a wild year, man. Yeah. Um, this thing is kind of like basically a a murder mystery sort of a plot um, set backstage at a musical. Uh, basically, on the opening night of like this big musical production, uh, somebody's trying to murder the leading lady of the show. Uh, the cops get called in, including a horn dog detective kind of a guy, uh, to check out the murders. Um, or the murder attempts, which continue. Um, people are, are still, you know, just barely missing, getting murdered. Uh, eventually, some cast members do get killed, uh, but the show must go on. And so uh, we end up kind of alternating between these elaborate musical numbers, you know, with lots of girls and very little clothing, uh, and the murder investigation. Uh, it even gets sort of like proto-slashery at times, you know, with this mixing of uh, sex and violence. Uh, there's even one scene in which a, you know, nearly nude girl gets uh, blood dripped on her from above that kind of is evocative of like a Jallo film or something. Um, you know, in terms of the the murder mystery itself, I'm not sure that it's the most incredible or satisfying conclusion to a mystery, but it, I think it's good enough to keep you invested. Um, I won't spoil the end of this or or really even what the kind of central uh, mystery of it is, um, because I, I do think it's worth watching on your own. Um, this was apparently based on a real set of shows on Broadway um, from this guy Earl Carroll, who had the show Earl Carroll's Vanities. Uh, and apparently those shows were even more risque than what we see here in the film. Um, and they always featured, um, as he credited them, uh, you know, on his posters and you also see credited here in the opening credits of the movie, uh, the most beautiful girls in the world is what you <laughs> call his, his troop of ladies. Yeah, uh, there's a, a pretty good sight gag at the beginning of this movie where over that yeah doorway, it says like the most beautiful girls in the world pass through this doorway. And then like this real like haggard old like cleaning lady comes out and dumps a garbage can or something. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. But but I guess that was like the real hook, and that's how they would advertise these shows. Um, one of those girls in those, you know, those real-world shows, uh, as well as in the background of this movie, uh, was Lucille Ball. She She's in mm -hmm. this movie. You can barely see her, but she is in there uh, singing and dancing. Um, and, you know, and there were other, like, famous, you know, actresses who would come through these shows. Um, it was a way for a lot of these dancers to kind of get their start in show business. Another... Uh... One of the the choir girls that you wouldn't know, but was back there as uh, Anne Sheridan, star of the aforementioned Angels with Dirty Faces. 
Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's it's a star studded affair in that way, um, I guess, um, you know, in terms of like the leading performances here, no real heavy hitters, like no big names, nobody that, that I was too familiar with. Maybe it was a different thing uh, back in 34. Maybe these people were certainly, uh, you know, more um, in the culture back then. People would know them. But um, the highlight of the movie, I think, is. Uh, those musical numbers, you know, with all these ladies. And and I think that they are extremely sexualized for the time. You know, you watch something like this and, and the fact that this is 1934 and you got all these shots of like these nearly nude women posing as statues or like, you know, they're always like frozen in some like prone position that's very suggestive. Uh, there's even a neon sign above a grip of these girls in one of the musical numbers that says... In big, bold letters, it says, they blow, they satisfy. And it's like, <laughs> what else could that mean? Uh, but even outside the songs, you know, these these ladies are hanging out backstage in their underwear for most of this movie. So, like, if, if you are the kind of guy that is maybe studying women's undergarments circa 1930s, this is the movie for you. Um, <laughs> and, of course, you know, the highlight of all these songs is the song Sweet Marijuana. Oh, yeah. Which is just insane. You know, I, I think you would be surprised if you were watching a 1930s movie and there was even like an offhand reference to marijuana. But the fact that like, you know, this movie has a full song dedicated to like singing the praises of marijuana. It's a very pro marijuana song. And there's at no point does anybody like call bullshit on it or anything like that. It's that's wild. You know, like I can't even imagine what it would have been like for like a, a movie going teenager in, in the 1930s to, you know, have seen this in 1934, you know, probably loves this marijuana song. He probably goes home and he's asking his parents, you know, where can I get some of this sweet marijuana? And then, you know, a couple years later, he's at the cinema house and he runs into this thing called reefer madness. It's that would have shocked his shocked him to the core. I would imagine, you know, that how quickly, uh, the, the social, um, acceptability of, of weed just kind of declined. It's kind of crazy. Um, but, you know, besides the songs, there's funny little scenes, uh, a lot of funny little dialogue moments. Um, there's at one point somebody says, you're in here making taxi cab hocus pocus, which I thought was a fun, <laughs> weird kind of non sequitur. Uh, yeah, it's and, funny. Well, it was, and they were referencing like them making out in a taxi cab, like, yeah, hocus pocus. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's was that a common thing? I, I guess people do make out in taxis, but you call it taxi cab hocus pocus. I, I don't know. I, I thought it was fun. <laughs> I that was the original name of taxi cab confessions. On <laughs> exactly. Um, I also like how all the guys in this are like total shitheads. You know, like this this producer guy who's running the show. It doesn't matter what happened. Like, it doesn't matter how many of these ladies are getting murdered, like right in front of him. He's like, no, we still got to do this show. we got a paying audience here. You know, he's just pushing ahead. Uh, the horn dog cop is like always leering at the girls, which is kind of hilarious. Um, and then also, actually, in terms of guys who don't come off as creeps, uh, you got the great Duke Ellington in this, you know, uh, pulling off some real fancy piano moves while he's conducting his band and and rocking a mean smile uh, right before this whole group of girls gets machine gunned down on stage <laughs> right in front of him and his band, which which is a pretty wild little moment. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I love this movie. Like I said, there's not a ton of star power and I think maybe that's why this movie is not as well remembered as it otherwise might be. Um, it's not the kind of movie that you would just kind of stumble into by going through like the filmography of an actor that you like, because other than Lucy, who I I don't think is actually credited, um, you know, you're probably not going to come to this too easily. Um, but like I said, I think this combines sexuality and violence in a way that, you wouldn't really see in, in movies again for a long time, you know, maybe until the 1960s. And um, I think it's cool that they they figured out the appeal of those two things together, you know, that early on in, in cinema. But um, what did you guys think of Murder at the Vanities? Well, I'd never heard of this, but I was intrigued because I love murder. You know, that's a defining characteristic of mine is that I just love murder. And um, you've got that sick collection of Vanity Fairs. <laughs> That's also true. Um, also, because, you know, we've discovered uh, throughout the course of the show, and you've been discovering, especially recently, that um, pre-code movies are spicy as all hell. So I was uh, eager to see some of that spice, hoping that that spice would be here. And like you said, that spice is here. Hell like, yeah. <laughs> these ladies are naked as hell. They're singing about getting high on marijuana. Va-va-voom. Va-va-voom. Lots of skin showing. So much skin. I didn't even know ladies back in these days had skin. The way that they're shown most of the time. So, you know, all that stuff is, like, fun to see. And, like, all the, like, green room stuff and backstage stuff is cool. And, like, you know, there's, like, all these, like, very energetic scenes of... Uh, you know, people getting ready. And like, that's kind of what I responded to most in this. The murder mystery, uh, I thought was kind of just boring and didn't really pay much attention to it. And I just paid attention to the, you know, the stage show stuff. And then, you know, the the people getting prepared for the stage show stuff. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of that energy backstage is, was very surprising to me. Um, because you know how modern and quickly edited it is and like how fastly paced um yeah considering you know this is what five or six years into sound being a thing in movies the fact that this doesn't feel like it's just a filmed stage play or something i think is incredible yeah absolutely i mean yeah these people are i mean yeah like they're just kind of figuring out the craft in like the last you know 15 20 years or something um and then and then yeah especially you know sound being new and i mean like a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the show from this era um you know a lot of my reference point obviously is the stuff we've talked about which is monster movies and stuff and like dracula frankenstein and the mummy were just a couple years before this or like a year before this and those even though i like frankenstein out of that bunch like they feel like stayed like they feel like you know filmed stage shows kind of like yeah um, that's and, that's something that's really surprised me this year and going and checking out more of these 1930s movies is that you know like you really the only stuff i had seen before was like universal monster movies and i kind of had a concept of of 1930s movies as like feeling really dated and then i've been watching some of these like comedies and musicals and like you know, just like romance dramas and stuff. 
turns out like there was a lot of good acting and good filmmaking happening back then, just not in the monster movies. And I mean, I still love the monster <laughs> movies for what they are, but I, I think you get kind of a skewed view of what the thirties were, if that's all you watch. Yeah. And maybe that was an aesthetic choice. Um, I mean, Invisible Man's very modern feeling and fast paced, but it's, um, I don't know, maybe a little bit more sci-fi. Like, I feel like it's trying to be less scary than, than the other aforementioned ones, but, um, but yeah, but yeah, it's, you know, I think Scarface was around this time and that's Mm -hmm. also like very modern feeling and fast and quick. And this is like just super quick. Like we're bouncing from person to person, um, thing to thing. Uh, and then, you know, the longest sort of most drawn out parts are, you know, the, the songs and the performances because, you know, they're showing you a whole song. Um, so it makes sense that they do that. Um, and while I was into that, I was into that snappiness. I was into some of the, the witty banter and the sauciness going on. The music in this is real bad. Um and while I like I felt like I should have been enjoying a lot of the stage stuff because of the costumes and the energy, you know, I just, you know, I don't, it's a victim of its time. I don't, like it's sort of like you say, it's like a little bit like pre jazz, right? Like so it's not like so jazzy. It's not swinging. It's, you know, it, it's kind of like just old crooner dudes. Kind of stuff. And. I don't like it. Maybe not even that the music's bad, but it it's not energetic. I didn't think. Um, I I think that one you know Duke Ellington number is pretty great, but yeah, I mean a lot of it, a lot of the rest of the music is kind of forgettable. Yeah, that one, yeah, that one's probably the best one. Um, but yeah, just like yeah, because of what music was popular at the time or whatever it was, like the music just didn't seem to match the the rest of the movie, and I. Well, know. except sweet marijuana. Me with your caress, sweet marijuana, marijuana. Help me in my distress, sweet marijuana. Like that song, uh, it was all right. It kind of, yeah, it matched what was going on. It was good. But yeah, some of them are just like kind of too slow for their own good and too croony, I guess. But, um, and also it's like kind of, I mean, I don't, I like 
musicals and Broadway stuff in like a very vague sense. Like I don't know much about it other than I like the stuff I like and I haven't seen like a ton. But um, this also seems for being based on stage shows that I assume would have been Broadway shows. This doesn't feel like very Broadway-y, like the way that I know it or modern audiences would know it. Like there's no like jazz hands and stuff like that. And like it's very sloppy too. Like a lot like a lot of the crowd dancers aren't like together at all um, and stuff like that, which I found interesting. I don't know if that's just like this movie or if that was just kind of the beginnings of Broadway and people were figuring it out or whatever. Um, I don't know I enough. That- I think it might come from this being a Paramount film and Paramount didn't really make musicals. This is kind of a weird exception for them. That was really more of like the RKO and and MGM kind of school. Okay. So yeah, maybe they were just like figuring it out themselves. I mean, yeah, this movie feels like a lot of people just figuring stuff out, which I think is really cool. Like uh, we're figuring out, you know, what's going to be happening next in music. We're figuring out sound and in movies. We're figuring out like how to party uh, we're figuring out how to just be alive during the depression, which um, is another cool thing. Like, I'm sure the movies like this, it seems like movies like this were like very popular at the time because like everything's extravagant, which was probably very appealing to the people who during the depression had an extra 10 cents to go see a movie when like everything around them sucked. So like seeing, you know, fancy ladies in perfume bottles naked was like probably like. <laughs> like, like a really cool thing because normally you're just seeing like you know homeless people starve to death in alleys <laughs> on, on the day-to-day because of the depression and you know in this per- post-world war one world like everything probably fucking sucked so uh so yeah i like that so i don't know like yeah i kind of like this in theory i like what it represents i like its energy and stuff but like I don't know. I don't. I don't like the the music and the story are kind of whack, and that's like a lot of what a movie is. So I got kind of mixed feelings about it, but uh, I'm glad I watched it. Well, Parker, like the Rolling Stones said, you're not the only one with mixed emotions because I also have mixed feelings about this movie. Um, I started watching this not knowing anything about it other than it was a 1934 movie. And when it started, I thought it was going to be kind of more along the lines of like those uh, like gold diggers of 1934 movies. That, have, we, have we done one of those on the show or we, we just did, talked about yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just one of those or maybe like one of those Busby Berkeley, you know, kind of just like review movies where it's got, you know, classy dames dancing it up on the big stage, you know, and, and we'd see the backstage kind of goings ons and yeah, maybe there'd be a murder. And it kind of is that, but it's more... Um, I think I was more taken aback by, like you guys mentioned, a lot of the pre-code sauciness of this film. I mean, I think that's kind of where a lot of the intrigue for this movie uh, comes in. Because, like you said, it it is very interesting to see a movie from 1934 where you got uh, dames and uh, all manner of undress. Again, you know, it's not like there's any rude titties or anything. But, you know, you got ladies with, you know, pretty, pretty scantily clad. Um, which again, surprising references to marijuana, surprising, um, you know, this movie's got a body count, you know, what you wouldn't expect in a, uh, in a thirties movie, you know, with the murder mystery going on and stuff. So uh, that is all very intriguing, you know, and I like the performances in this actually. I mean, despite the fact that it is an older film, I think there's some actually, uh, 
really good performances. I love, like you mentioned, uh, Jack Oakey as Jack Eller- Ellery, the guy who's running this whole show. I love his manic energy, and I love the way he interacts with uh, Victor McLaglin, the guy who played Bill Murdoch, the cop that's uh, at first just trying to get tickets to the show and then is there on official business investigating these murders. But I love the way that those two interact with each other, and I love Jack Oakey's just hatred for him and the cops in general, you know, saying things like, get out of here, a cop around the theater is bad for business, and, like, I could smell you a mile away. And so I just love the shit-talking that he does to this cop. I think it's uh, it's very fun, and uh, their exchanges were very uh, entertaining. And I like, you know, again, there's a lot of fun, antiquated dialogue in it. Like I said, lots of calling uh, the ladies dames. Um you know, I like the way that that Nancy lady was like, Mr. Ellery, Mr. Ellery, you know, all that. <laughs> it's just old timey fun grandma talk, which, hey, come on. No, I'm a sucker for that, that kind of sexy grandma talk. Um, get that drop. Uh, but <laughs> was already planning on it. <laughs> but yeah, um, it was just fun, uh, fun all around. Um, but like Parker mentioned, the murder mystery, not so intriguing. Uh, I found myself, you know, kind of just like losing interest. Like, I don't care who did the murder. <laughs> like, I just want to see, you know, more marijuana songs and, uh, uh, you know, goofy exchanges between the cop and the, the showrunner. Um, so the murder mystery, I, I, it felt a little weak. And again, I don't know if it's just a, a, a virtue of the time that it was made. Uh, and my modern eyes being used to a little bit more, uh, you know, action-packed murder mysteries. But, yeah, the the mystery and story behind the murder just kind of fell flat for me, which, like Parker says, is kind of a big part of this. But uh, nevertheless, I think the parts that do work and the things that are, like, kind of cool, interesting curiosities for the time frame uh, kind of even it out. And I, I'm definitely uh, glad to have watched this. Um, and, you know, you had mentioned that, this is part of that um, pre-code box set, um, which looks really cool, actually. I looked it up because I, you know, I was looking to see what kind of home video uh, release this has gotten, and I saw that box set. And I would like to check out more of these because, yeah, like you said, you know, just if if nothing else, I mean, even if they're not going to be like your favorite movie that you watch uh, um, over and over again, like seeing some of these pre-code movies. I mean, you can. I think it's like a seven or eight movie box set. You can get it for under 30 bucks. It's got movies like The Cheat, Merrily We Go to Hell, Hot Saturday, Torch Singer, The Murder of the Vanities, of course, and Search for Beauty. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to see Merrily We Go to Hell. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, just the title alone is interesting. But yeah, they're all universal pre-code movies. So who knows? Maybe I'll be checking out more of those down the line but yeah like you know i think a term that we use quite a bit on the show that i think is apropos for this movie is an interesting curiosity and you know maybe not a movie that you're going to want to watch uh every every week or you know even every year but uh, it's definitely worth checking out once just to see how people got down in the pre-code 1934 world when they weren't you know fighting universal monsters so yeah i'd say it's definitely worth checking out Nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I do agree with you guys. I, I don't think that the, um, the murder mystery element of this is incredible or anything, but 
again, I, I can't think of any other movies from the 30s that are like this. So um, I, I would give this a strong recommend, and I think a lot of people out there would enjoy it. Um, it was on the Criterion channel uh, at some point earlier this year. It looks like they've since pulled it off, but um, hopefully it gets a, an updated you know, uh, restoration and, and home video release at some point. Uh, but if not, yeah, it's got it's out there on that pre-code Hollywood collection. So I recommend checking it out. Uh, but that's Murder at the Vanities from 1934. We will take a quick break and then we'll come back to talk about SLC Punk. Stick around. Dick Norse, Bob Welty, Paul James, Mountain America's number one news team. From Broadcast House, Mountain America's news center, the most complete, comprehensive, and up-to-the-minute news reporting in the Mountain West, the Channel 5 Eyewitness News. Tonight on Colors of Hate, we'll tell you about the different kinds of straight-edgers. Straight-edgers take a strong stand against alcohol, tobacco, and drugs, and many of them are vegetarians or vegans. We don't hate anybody, but we really don't hang out with druggies because they're just killing themselves. But police say some straight-edgers are so passionate about their beliefs about drugs, alcohol, and veganism, they get involved in violence. Last June, two leather stores were vandalized, and police say some of the people involved were straight-edgers. Uh, several other fire bombings and vandalism throughout the valley we've seen, uh, and related to the same people who are involved with straight-edge. And it's the violence, not the straight-edgers' positive beliefs, that has police interested in the group. Well, it's the reason that we focus on them, uh, because they're involved in criminal activity. You know, if they weren't, we would care less about them. And although most of these kids say they adamantly oppose hate groups like skinheads, police tell us there are straight-edgers who have wanted to add white supremacist ideals to their platform. But because of the violence straight-edgers are often associated with, the ones who don't believe in those ideals are grouped together with the others, and everyone is seen as a hate group. Speaking for myself, I don't really, I don't really want to come from a hate standpoint, but it, it kind of is because we're kind of angry about the whole thing. Rob Hill has been a straight-edger for four years. He doesn't agree with violence or any hate group ideals. I mean, I'd rather the kids be getting into something like this that's, you know, all this kind of thing, as opposed to whatever else there is out there that preaches, you know, smoke pot, have sex, it's cool, you know. Now, we've had a lot of calls from straight-edgers who want people to know they are not violent and do not hate. But I've also received some calls tonight from people who say they've been victims of straight-edger violence when smoking or drinking. They all kind of come together in a gang mentality, and that's what police are telling us. Okay, and we'll see the result of somebody going too far tomorrow night. Exactly. All right, thanks, Robert. Former pop star Vanilla Ice gets beat up and thrown off the stage here in Salt Lake last night. The singer had just taken the stage at Salt Lake's Tower Theater when suddenly, according to a witness, including the man who shot this tape, a fan jumped on the stage and punched Vanilla Ice. Now that led to a brawl in the audience. And then concertgoers outside began attacking Vanilla Ice's bus. It sounds like people were throwing bottles at it. There were some windows that were broken out of the bus, and there was a dollar value assigned to the damage of about 1500 bucks. 
This latest of Vanilla Ice's acts is his second attempt to reinvent himself. Police say no arrests were made, but they did hand out citations. Vanilla Ice did not file a police report. the world was to be totally misunderstood and when you're living in the most conservative city in america do you a conform this rebellion things are going through i i I understand it not completely but uh, i respect it b learn to cope i am the future i am the future of this great nation steven i didn't i didn't sell out son i bought in or c is he gonna be okay oh yeah he'll be fine i'm sure thank you though none of the above Aladdin, and this is my lamp. I wished for you, and here you are. Bob was in love. You're like a poet, dude. I just started thinking, you know, Salt Lake ain't that bad. I know, no, no, I mean, I know it sucks and all, but, you know, this is like, this is like home, you know? Matthew Lillard, star of Scream and She's All That. <laughs> and Michael Gorgian in a film about living life. If I knew what was ahead of me, I may have stayed in bed. Life is like that. Never have so many of Satan's followers been amassed on the earth as there are now. What? And getting out alive. 666. The mark will be on all of them. Oh, my God! With attitude. Go, go, go! I told you those boys were trouble. What's your major going to be? I want to save the rainforest. Somebody's got to fight for them. Salt Lake City Punk. Welcome back to Junk Bod Schlitzy. The next Schlitzy we'll be talking about is SLC Punk. The S stands for Schlitzy. Uh, this is a 1998 movie directed by James Marandino. Uh, you may also remember uh, him from probably nothing. I don't know. He's he's uh, a guy I've always wanted to see more of his stuff. He did the sequel to this, which came out a couple years ago. He did one of the witchcraft movies. Uh, and some horror movies and like some softcore porn. I don't I don't know. His career seems odd, but this is uh, probably his 
the thing he's most noted for. Um, and this was executive produced by Jan de Bont, which I bring up just because I wanted to say Jan de Bont. Well, I'm glad you got to say it. I did not realize that. Fun name. <laughs> um, this was a big movie for me as a young man. Um, it came out and, you know, kind of gets lumped in in my memory um, with things like, you know, your slacker, your clerks, your glory days, uh, your mall rats, and, you know, all those kind of slacker coming of age movies. Although I do think that this is a little bit, it has lofty, it has lofty goals. I don't know that it meets them at all times, but I do think that this tries uh, hard to be sort of a movie that is like the definitive punk rock movie um, and tries to be, you know, kind of more than just like watch these dudes hang out. Although I think that this movie works best when it's just watch these dudes hang out. Um, but so the the plot of this movie is we've got punk rockers Steve-O and Heroin Bob. Uh, they live in Salt Lake City. This takes place in the early 80s. Uh, and we just kind of like aimlessly drift through their lives and are introduced to their wacky friends and stuff like that. Uh, despite being an independent production, um, this movie has a banger cast. Uh, we've got James Duvall, who was in all of Greg Aragi's stuff. Uh, Jason Segal, who went on to become one of the more famous comedy dudes. Uh, Till Schweiger, who's in pretty much every movie you've ever seen. Um, I think he was in Inglorious Bastards. It's probably like the most uh, famous thing. He's he's kind of like a that guy, you know, like you know him. Uh, Christopher McDonald, a.k.a. Shooter McGavin's in here. Steve-O's dad. Uh, lots of other people. I'm sure we'll get to them all. Um, but yeah, so this movie starts off. In kind of an odd way, like I feel like this, like this movie is very sloppy in its presentation, um, and I don't. I think that some of that's on purpose, and I think some of that's by accident. Um, but it it starts out. We've got Steve-O and Bob who live together, introducing us to all these folks, and then they go on. Uh, I don't know tangents. We get stories. We get little glimpses of their lives. Uh, we get you know, like they tell the story about their friend Sean, played by Devin Sawa, uh, the wonderful Devin Sawa, who uh, he, in an effort to evade uh, security guards, the acid he's carrying on him um, ends up melting because he runs through a sprinkler and he accidentally takes like 100 hits of acid and then he goes crazy. Um, and, you know, that starts out as like an interesting, weird anecdote and it kind of becomes not so much part of the plot, but part of an overall theme, I guess, um, that comes back. We get why heroin Bob is called heroin Bob. It's not because he loves heroin. It's because he hates needles. Uh, and we get a story that exemplifies that. Um, and yeah, just like a lot of little, little pieces of these folks lives over the course of, um, you know, I don't know, a couple years after they've graduated college. Um, we get, to see what the punk rock scene in uh, Salt Lake is like, how how tough it is, uh, both in terms of like the actual shows and in terms of the fact that these punk rockers are always being beaten up by cops and um, rednecks and, and mods um, and stuff like that. And I think and there's a lot of um, 
Matthew Lillard, Steve O goes through like a lot about the different tribes of folks who lived in Salt Lake City. And you get a lot about like the mods and the punks and the new wave kids and and the younger punks who were posers and uh, metalheads and like all these different people. And like, I think that that's what I really respond to about this movie and what I thought was interesting about it when I was a kid, because um, I don't know, because like that was always really interesting to me. Like James Duvall's character is a mod who they say is like unique because he can like drifts between like all the different crews of people. And like my friend Jono was kind of like that. Like he would hang out with like us punks. And then the next day he'd be wearing like all Adidas and he'd be hanging out with like the kids who were into corn. And like the next day he'd be wearing like his, um, you know, like his fish shirts and he'd be hanging out with the hippie kids. And like, he was like, kind of like that. Um, although I guess like James Duvall's character is always a mod. He just is friendly with everybody kind of a thing. So it's not exactly like that, but like, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, I like, like, I don't know. It just seemed like a lot of this was like very real to me, like more so than some of the other movies like this. Like, uh, the character Mike in this, that Jason Seagal plays, he like hangs out with the punks and he's a punk, but he like dresses like a dorky nerd and wears polo shirts. And like in high school, my best friend Levis was like, uh he dressed exactly like that before this movie even came out and like i don't know just like a lot of stuff like that like just rang really really true to me um another character that rang very true to me in this movie is the till schweiger character who plays mark and he's like an older guy who's like very into drugs or like sells drugs he's not very into drugs but like uh he like invites these guys over you get the impression that, like, he's very lonely. Like, I've always gotten that impression about, like, a lot of, like, drug dealer dudes. Like, they're very lonely a lot of the time. So, like, he invites yeah. people over and, like, just shows off all this stuff. Like, he's like, hey, this is what a laser disc is. Hey, check out my waterbed. And, like, I knew a guy like that. And so, I don't know. Like, a lot of these little moments in this ring really, really true to me. And I think work really well. Um, towards, like, some of the bigger moments, like... Matthew Lillard has this huge monologue. That's probably like what a lot of people remember about this movie. Um, if it's not heroin, Bob's uh, fucked up hand it, it, where he's talking about like, you know, the difference between like old school punks and like the posers and like, you know, how anar like it doesn't make any sense for like a kid in Salt Lake to talk about anarchy in the UK and like, all the, you know, and like, it doesn't matter if the Ramones started punk rock and like, like this big diatribe, like, I don't know, that stuff seems like a little bit like trying too hard, I think maybe. You're, you're telling me that he has one monologue about all that stuff? <laughs> well, he's got a lot of monologues about that, but that about one in 40% of the runtime. Yeah. Well, yeah, there are a lot of monologues about that kind of stuff. Some, like he gets on to like all these monologues about like, um, you know, like anarchy versus order and stuff like that, that I think are kind of interesting, but like also trying too hard. Um, but like, that's kind of like what a lot of this movie is about. It's sort of like, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a lot of uh, death and decay. And like, there's like this theme that runs it very loosely about, you know, how growing up is sort of a death, but then you get reborn. So we're talking death <laughs> about who you're going to be in life and stuff like that. That like, I don't know. It's kind of like interesting. Um, I feel, I don't know. Like there's like a lot, like it gets heavy handed. One of this movie has one of the better acid scenes I've ever seen in a movie and it gets really heavy handed. 
the, the idea of growing up being the apocalypse or being death is like they're punching you right in the face in that scene. But I like that scene a great deal. Um, I like um, it a great deal. I do like it a great deal. I like the fourth wall breaking in this. There's like some really interesting stuff. Like, I mean, Steve-O treats you like you are a character in the movie the whole time and breaks the fourth wall like that. But then there's like also really like cool aesthetic stuff where like he'll be telling you a story and then he'll be like, oh, well, let's just go there. And then like the set tilts and you're all of a sudden in a new place at a different time and um, stuff like that that I think is really cool. Um, so, so, yeah. So I don't know. I love this movie. I could see why someone would find it annoying um, because it's, 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 it's coming at you. It's coming at you from all angles. Um, but a lot of it rings, like I said, really true to me. I think there's a, a core honesty to it. And also it's just like really fun to watch. Like it's just always moving and there's always a lot going on and it introduces you to a ton of fun characters um, and it has a good soundtrack. So I think this is a fun movie. What do you guys think about it? Was, was this your first time watching this? Uh, oh no no I I watched it a lot as a as a young man. Yeah I I also watched this a lot as a young man. I saw this movie. I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it shortly after it came out on home video, and I feel like this also got played on cable um, quite a bit afterwards. Um, so yeah, I remember seeing this movie three or four times um, shortly after it came out. And it was popular in college, like when I was at college in the early 2000s, a lot of people had this in their DVD collection, and I feel like it would get popped in quite a bit, you know, along with all the other kind of standard staples of that time, like Big Lebowski and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and stuff like that. So I definitely saw this multiple times growing up. I hadn't really gone back to revisit it um, as a older uh, adult, um, but... I was kind of nervous to go back and watch this because I remember liking it quite a bit at the time that I saw it originally, but I knew that being an older, more cynical old man, uh, that probably a lot of this wasn't going to hold up as well as it did when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. And, um, sure enough, it doesn't, I mean, <laughs> uh, there are, like you said, there are things that, that still ring true about this. And obviously this, you know, this was written by, um, this James Marindo guy, um, Marindino, uh, uh, the guy that directed this, he wrote this movie. And obviously I think it's probably pretty semi-autobiographical because, you know, uh, according to Wikipedia, he, he did move to Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah when he was six years old, um, graduated high school in 1985, which is, you know, when this movie takes place. And, you know, I'm sure he probably was involved in the scene because there's a lot of stuff that, you know, like you said, rings very true to life and feels very much pulled from someone who actually lived in Salt Lake City and was a punk during that time. And, you know, uh, but there are things in this that you said that are pretty heavy handed and it gets a little kind of annoying with its punk philosophy. And a lot of times, you know, as a kid watching this, you're like, oh, man, these guys are so cool and like they're doing all this crazy stuff. But as an adult, a lot of times I just felt like George Decay in that Trekkie documentary where I'm just sitting there like, these people are foolish. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> you're just like, oh, these guys just make bad decisions. Um and yeah, I mean, obviously just, you know, the whole anarchy philosophy that these guys have is flawed in many ways, and they even call that out in the movie. Um, so I think it's it is kind of self aware, 
Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, there are things to like on this. Uh, one, great soundtrack. A lot of cool uh, songs on the soundtrack. I mean, it's got a lot of the classic 80s punk stuff that you would expect, you know, like the exploited and fear and um, things like that. But it's also got uh, some proto-punk stuff. You got the Stooges and Velvet Underground on the soundtrack as well. But uh, yeah, overall, very cool soundtrack, uh, which I like. Like you said, great cast of young performers um, that would go on to a lot of you know, most of them to bigger and better things. Um, I think Matthew Lillard is, this is the kind of role that he works well in. You know, I think people have kind of turned the corner on Matthew Lillard. I think people kind of like don't like him anymore, but you know, when he was playing these types of roles, like whether it was this or, you know, I think back to his role in hackers, which, you know, whether you like that or not. Um, and then I think he was also a punk rock rocker and something else. Um, that wasn't very good. Just like some, some other crappy movie. He played a punk rocker, but anyway, yeah, I think that's kind of like the the lane that he works best in. And I think, as far as a leading role, this is probably the best that Matthew Lillard, um, you know, could probably expect. And I think he does a pretty good job in this, despite you know having some annoying parts. I think, you know, his his. I mean, and I hate to mock a you know, I guess what's considered a uh, somewhat serious scene, but when when Bob dies, spoiler alert, Matthew Lillard has this like little cry fest where he's going for his his Oscar moment, and it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> I don't. I don't yeah. Between uh, this and Scream, I feel like it's not you know a Matt Lillard performance unless we get to see him like drooling and you know like <laughs> slobbering all over the place. Yeah, exactly. But that being said, I, I do like Lillard in this. I think, it, like I said, it's, I think he does, does a good job with what he has. And, and, you know, like I said, like you mentioned, the other, the rest of the cast, it's also pretty cool. Um, I like pretty much everybody in this. Uh, so, you know, no complaints about the acting, good soundtrack, like I said, rings true to life. But that being said, yeah, like I mentioned, just multiple things in this kind of got on my nerves this time around, just, uh, from the preachiness of it to the, you know, kind of over emphasis of the posers, you know, and stuff like, like when Bob dies, he's like, only posers die. Like who would say that? Like that is pure silliness. Um, that's what I say. Anytime, anytime I hear about somebody dying, I, that's exactly <laughs> what I say. Of course you say that. What else do you say when someone dies? <laughs> um, I like the, the relationship between, uh, Steve-O and Shooter McGavin as his dad. I think that's a, a cool relationship. Although I read that the guy that played Shooter McGavin was only 15 years older than Matthew Lillard at the time that they <laughs> shot this movie. So I guess he had him young. Um, another fun factoid that I read about this movie is that I guess Steve-O, Matthew Lillard's character, was supposed to have bleach blonde hair in this movie, but the peroxide burned his scalp horrendously, leaving like a bloody mess on the top of his head. So they dyed it blue to cover up the oozing sores on his head. What kind so. of weak ass scalp does he have? I mean, we all <laughs> peroxided our hair as kids, right? Yeah. 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 I guess Lillard was just, has got a sensitive scalp. I guess that's it. why we don't see him in leading roles these days anymore. <laughs> But yeah, um, but yeah. So overall, I mean, I, I think the um, 
I, I, I like the structure of this. I mean, like you mentioned, it, it, I think it works well as like a hangout movie where it just tells, tells these little stories here and there, you know, and it feels like just, you know, kind of a, a cool hangout movie where we get these little slices of life, these little stories of teenage rebellion and, you know, getting hassled by the cops and like what they have to do to get real beer and, you know, scoring drugs and dealing with the weirdos and the, you know, the, the other people in the scene. I think that's all pretty fun. Um, I, have you ever seen the sequel that came out like, uh, 2016, the punk's dead SLC no. punk too. I have. Yeah. How is it? I watched it's... the trailer for it after watching this because I totally forgot it existed. And anyway, yeah. What, what's your opinion of it? <laughs> it's okay. Like the, it's only like, it's a little bit over an hour long and the first like half hour is hor- horribly bad. It's like, Heroin Bob is a ghost, like bringing you up to speed about everything that's happened, like in the scene for the last twenty years, and it's well, really it's, bad. It's based on his son, right? Like, his, it's supposed to be like Heroin Bob's son. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's yeah, like a but, modern day like goth, but hangs yeah. out with punk kids and stuff. And it's it, but it brings back a lot of the people like James Duvall and like the lady who played um, Heroin Bob's girlfriend. It's the mom. Yeah, yeah, Devin Sawas even comes back. Yeah, that stuff is good. Like once it gets into like their story, I liked it, but there's a lot of real bad stuff in it. It's okay. I don't know. It's worth checking out, I guess, if you like this movie. Is is Lillard in it at all? He is not, no. And it's like real apparent that they wanted him and couldn't get him because Devin Sawa, like you can tell that Devin Sawa is playing the role that they wrote specifically to be Steve-O and just couldn't get Steve-O to do it. So that's why Devin Sawa's there. Like, it's very obvious. Huh. Yeah. But anyway, the original SLC Punk, <laughs> um, it, it, it still holds up, but it might not hold up as much as you remember. Yeah, I, I think both of you guys gave a pretty fair assessment there, and, and I pretty much agree with everything that you said. It's It's been a while since I've seen this. I, you know, the last time I saw this... I think Jason Siegel was probably best known for this movie, you know, which is it's so it's kind of wild to go back and watch it now, you know, after he's, you know, had this uh, all the success, you know, in, in the field of technical Muppetry and television acting and all this. Um, this is a movie that like multiple sets of my friends were like fairly obsessed with, like back east, my friends Jim and Ron, I feel like would watch this nonstop and I would always be walking in you know, halfway through. And, and I was always down to sit down and enjoy it because I, you know, I, I liked it, but I wasn't as obsessed. And then uh, when I moved out here, my first roommate, Jeff, uh, was from a Mormon family. And so, you know, of course, this was like a big thing for him. Uh, and so, yeah, through my like teenage years and, and early 20s, like this movie was always around. Uh, but I haven't come back to it, um, you know, for a long time. And uh, was like you guys a little bit nervous as to how this would hold up. And I think my favorite part of this, um, has held up perfectly. You know, it's, it's as good now as it was then, which is the character of Mark. Uh, I love Mark in this thing. Mm -hmm. I think he's really hilarious. Uh, the scene that you mentioned where he's like showing off, you know, his laser disc collection and, you know, his shower head and and all this (laughs) stuff around his apartment is very funny. Uh, yeah, this, I still got to chuckle at. There's a movie on there. 
(laughs) The scene where he like casually references that Ronald Reagan had a testicle amputated uh, is some funny stuff. Just everything about the guy is, is hilarious to me. And so it's, it's really kind of a bummer when he like pieces out like halfway through this movie and, and he's, you know, not to be seen uh, ever again, uh, you know, which I guess is how life is. And, and the movie, you know, even makes that point. But uh, I, you know, I, I would pay for an alternate cut of this where you got Mark throughout the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I did want to mention is like this movie really captures that that thing that happens when you're at this age, when you're like 24, 25, 26, where like dudes who are your best friends, like they just move away. Like they're just gone one day. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like a, it's a really fascinating thing that happens in life that, that this movie captures perfectly. Yeah, I, I think so too. And and I think that you're right when you say that this captures like a lot of small things, probably better than it does some of its, you know, bigger things that it's trying to do. Um, I do feel like a lot of these characters are very relatable um, and I, and I love the fact that he does kind of cast this really wide net with like the group of characters that he wants to put in this movie. You know, like you said, you got punks and mods and metalheads and and everybody else. Um, and that's pretty cool. Um, so, I mean, on the whole, I, I do feel like this is a pretty fun, watchable experience. Still, there are some cringe moments here and there and, and like on occasion you feel like, oh, you know, Matt Lillard, I, I wish he would just kind of shut up for a minute and stop like ferris buellering at the camera you, you know what i mean but um yeah that, it's pretty fun overall and and um i wouldn't say that this has gotten better with age in the way that like i've been revisiting some stuff and been really surprised at how like some 80s action movies um are really you know still very impressive uh you know i, I don't feel that way about this but um, it was a fun kind of uh, nostalgia trip to go back to this and and overall you know i think i enjoyed this more than um, what was that Canadian punk rock uh, mockumentary thing that we watched? Whatever that remember. was. Yeah. yeah whatever you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah I, I, I already hardcore, forgot. Hardcore logo. Sorry, I was muted. Hardcore logo. Yeah. Um, this was a, a, a more entertaining watch for me than hardcore logo. Um, yeah. I think that's accurate. Despite it, you know, having lines like only posers die, which is, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty rough stuff. But yeah, th- this was fun. And and James Duvall is like the coolest mod on the planet, so always fun to see him. Yeah, yeah. I love I like I, love, I like when he takes that drug and says bonsai or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love uh, the scene where like he's selling drugs to heroin ba- or to to Sean, and like all the other mods are like giving Sean shit for being a punk, and like they they get into like this big punks versus like mods conversation, but then Sean. And um, James Duvall, like, agreed to meet up later to get his mom to take them to soccer practice. And, like, that that just, like, feels astronomically real for being in high school to me. Like, I don't know. I just love that scene. That also betrays the verisimilitude of this being a mockumentary. I disagree with that. I think that the verisimilitude in this movie is marvelous. Not sure why you would have said it then at that precise time. (laughs) Uh, so that wraps it up for SLC Punk. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to be talking about House of Just a Couple of Hundred Corpses. So stick around. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Dom DeLuise. It's so exciting. I'm going to be cooking. If you don't like that, I'll, uh, I'll sleep with your sister. There's a whole room 
The whole room shook. Well, there'll be a small portions. How long is this going to take? Oh, not long at all. This is going to bless the crowd. This will take about seven hours. There's going to be enough for everybody. Can you do this in your own kitchen? I mean, sure, like sure. Oh, sure. You know how beautiful this lady is? This is the greatest lady. Wait, sorry. And I want to, excuse me. I've got to, oh, she's, I'm sorry. I, oh, wait a minute. You have to mix it up. Good. How about you? Very good. All right. Now what happens is, Join the Dom DeLuise Club at patreon.com slash junkfooddinner if you smell what Mr. Dom DeLuise is cooking. Hi, it's me, Dom DeLuise. <laughs> Here, now you have a cigar, compliments of the club. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Let me walk you out. <laughs> Just one song before being attacked. Vanilla Ice became famous for his rap, but has since changed musical directions. Concertgoers say straight-edge gang members were taunting the singer just before the trouble began. Following that, another guy um, jumped up on stage and was like, kind of waving his hands in the air, kind of like he was enjoying it, and then he turned around and decked Vanilla Ice in the face. After the attack, fighting broke out and there was some vandalism. Police came and broke things up. I'll make a shoehorn out of your shin I'll make a lampshade of durable skin No, don't you know that I'm always feeling able when I'm sitting home and I'm carving out your navel I'm just a sitting here carving out your navel He does have a floppy mouth Oh yeah When will I realize that this skin I'm in Hey, it is in mine And when will the kill be too much of me Probably Canadian. Probably is. And when will I realize that this skin I'm in, hey, it isn't mine? From the special effects creator, Leprechaun, Gabe Bartolos, comes a new icon of terror. They came to the country for peace and quiet. Uh, my family and I were out on a little vacation, and uh, one of our tires blew out. My house is right across the street. You people are really so nice out here. But in this town, nothing is what it seems. And secrets can kill. Look into the face of evil. And pray for your soul.
hearing the music of Captain Sensible from the hit TV show, The Young Ones. Introducing the Surgeon General, Octo Baby, The Brain, and featuring the star of Harry Potter and Willow, Warwick Davis as Plates. Meet the Surgeon General. Skin deep. Your fears. Welcome back to Junk Food Dinner. The final movie we're going to be taking a look at on the show this evening is Skinned Deep from 2004. Uh, this is a movie that I was unaware of its existence until fairly recently uh, when Severin, the fine folks at Severin, uh, released this on Blu-ray. Um, I think either earlier this year or late last year. And, um, you know, after seeing some promotional material for their Blu-ray release and seeing some stills, I was like, oh, shit, this looks uh, interesting. I want to check this out, especially when I found out that this was uh, directed by none other uh, than Gabe Bartalos. And if that name sounds familiar, but you might not be sure who he is, uh, he is mostly known for being a special makeup, makeup effects artist um, who worked on such classics as... Um, Friday the 13th, Part 6, Texas Chainsaw 2, From Beyond, Dolls. Uh, but most importantly, I think, for folks like us, he worked on Spookies. He did a lot of the yeah. creature effects on Spookies. Uh, he worked on those uh, Basket Case sequels and The Brain Damage with Hen and Lauder, as well as Frankenhooker. And, um, the first uh, Leprechaun? I was just about to say Leprechaun, yeah. He was a... Uh, did the makeup effects on that. Uh, so yeah, I love, uh, his work as, as far as a, uh, a special effects guy. And it looked like based on the stills that I saw from this, that this had a lot of Mr. Bartolos's signature special effects works and some cool creature creations. Uh, and this was his directorial debut. So I was like, fuck yeah, let's, let's check this out. So I, I had picked this up, uh, recently at Horror Hound, Severn had a table there, and I picked up a handful of their discs, this being one of them, uh, and was very excited to check this out. Um, so the first thing you notice that, you know, this was made in 2004, at least that's when it was released. Um, I think it was when it was originally released, it didn't have a whole lot of fanfare around it. I think it probably went straight to video, and uh, not a lot of people noticed it, but it seems decidedly a lot earlier than 2004. Um, and I couldn't get any really definitive answers on this where I was looked. I mean, the, when I watched like a, a little bit of a featurette on the Blu-ray that kind of had a making of, and they talked about how it took, uh, years to make this. So I have to assume that they were making it, um, you know, probably, in the late nineties, early two thousands. And it didn't come out till 2004, but it feels like it's straight out of like 1992 fucking two or something. Um, and I think part of that is because it is pretty low budget. It f feels pretty low. You feel the low budgetness in, in the, uh, camera and most of the audio, like the dialogue and the sound effects are done ADR, like after the fact, and I think that also adds to kind of the old, making it feel older than, than it actually is. And, of course, you get a lot of really cool, uh, practical, rubbery monster effects, which also is, you know, something you think of more as a thing of the 90s and the 80s. But, um, 
you know, there are some 2004 things to this. Like, uh, there's a scene where uh, Forrest J. Ackerman has a heart attack, and there's a really terrible CGI heart explosion that you see. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about how that comes to be. But the general story of this is essentially just kind of like a Texas Chainsaw themed horror movie where a uh, a family of four, a mom, a dad, a daughter, and a son are out uh, traveling in a remote part of the country on vacation. Uh, their car has a flat tire, maybe not necessarily by by accident, and they're forced to take refuge at a... Um, you know, an old kind of like truck stop place. It's also this per- these weird old lady's house and turns out to be filled with a series of murderous weirdos, uh, including the guy that gets, you know, top billing on the uh, poster and cover art of this, a uh, character named the Surgeon General, who is a very cool design monster where he has like this, you know, he has like these goggles and a giant bear trap for a mouth and a, you know, rubbery monster face. Uh, he's a very cool looking monster and he's the one that does, you know, he's the leather face of the family. He's the guy that does the bulk of the killing. Uh, but then you've also got a guy named Plates, uh, played by Warwick Davis. I'm sure Gabe Bartolos, you know, calling in a, a lep- leprechaun favor, getting Warwick Davis to be in this movie. He plays Plates. He's a little guy who uh, is just always seems to be coked up and ready to throw a fucking plate at your head. That's his character. Uh, you've also got another member of this family named Brain, or Brian, but Brain's more appropriate because he has a giant fucking brain growing uh, on his head. And um, and then, like I said, you got this kind of uh, twisted grandma who, you know, these guys um, are, live in this crazy, weird house that has newspapers all over the wall. And they end up killing most of the family and taking this daughter hostage. And she has to try to escape. Um, much like, you know, the Maryland character in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, meanwhile, you have a group of elderly bikers that show up to the premise to get a cup of coffee. Um, and it's funny, you know, they, they're a biker gang called the Ancient Ones. And they're made up of all... Uh, elderly guys, including, like I said, the aforementioned Forrest J. Ackerman, uh, the uh, editor and publisher of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, making what would have to be probably one of his final film appearances in this, as an old biker whose heart explodes at one point. Um, In addition to killing this family, there's another part in this where the family goes out on the road with the uh, kidnapped daughter strapped to the front of the car, um, which is pretty wild. And then they track down a group of carpenters who are out in a pickup truck, uh, drinking beer, smoking, and projecting uh, like eight millimeter porno movies on the road as they drive, which was kind of cool. I had never seen anything like that before. Now tell uh, me, who was the source of this videotape? Uh, well, one of the sources of the videotape was. Uh, one of the guys who plays the carpenter in that um, Pete Acilio Jr. or whatever, the guy who was uh, the guy with the puppet on his hand in Spookies. So it was cool to yeah. see yeah. a Spookies <laughs> alum make an appearance in this. Um, and they are uh, killed off uh, in in grisly fashion by this, this family of weirdos. Uh, <laughs> 
Exactly. That's what it sounded like. That's exactly, <laughs> exactly what, what it sounded like. Um, so yeah, so this movie, um, I, I'm I'm mixed on this um, because on one hand, I love, like I said, I love Gabe Bartalos as a creature effects maker. I think he has created some really memorable practical effects in this movie and some really interesting characters. Um, and the plot itself, again, just being kind of a Texas chainsaw massacre rip, um, you know, it's, it's not terrible, but I think maybe he bit off a little bit more than he could chew trying to direct, um, write and provide the makeup effects on this because while the makeup effects are awesome, as you would expect from a makeup effects wizard like Gabe Bartolos, I think the directing leaves a lot to be desired. I think the movie itself is kind of a mess. I think the ADR dialogue and sound effects um, are kind of jarring. And, uh, you know, there's obviously being a low budget movie, there's some pretty bad performances. And I think having the ADR, the dialogue after the fact, make some bad performances even that much more wooden and stilted like for example the the character of of brain you know he's kind of a soft talking kind of um you know he's kind of like the the more likable one of the family but a lot of his dialogue just feels like really hard to hear and kind of um slightly like a little too buried in the mix because of the adr i think a lot of the camera work um and editing is is kind of amateurish and you know while that it kind of lends to the um you know low budget appeal of a movie like this i feel like it does kind of hinder it um at times so i feel like maybe this might have been a better movie had gabe bartolo said okay you know i came up with this kind of idea and these these characters maybe i'll let somebody else kind of take the director's wheel and i you know i think it probably could have been a better movie had he done so, because I think there's a lot to like in this. I mean, like I said, that, um, you know, surgeon general character, I mean, in a better movie, that dude's a star. That dude is on t-shirts. That dude is selling action figures. That dude is, you know, got merchandise at hot topic. Um, but I think because he's in a movie that is kind of lackluster from a technical perspective, um, not a lot of people, uh, will appreciate the greatness of, of a character like the surgeon general. Um, there are some just kind of random weird things in this that I found amusing. There's a scene that for seemingly no apparent reason, we have the brain character, uh, run through the streets of New York city, totally nude in like a kind of weird fantasy sequence, I guess. But, um, it was funny watching the making of that was a, you know, a real scene that they did. They didn't obviously didn't get any permits for it. Uh, they just had this actor who played the brain strap on this giant brain prosthetic, strip down nude to nothing but a pair of gym shoes and run through the streets of New York city naked. And apparently, you know, it freaked a lot of people out. As you can imagine, women screamed, uh, people threatened to call the cops. Uh, and all he could do was just run down the street and hope, Gabe Bartolo's got the shot. So I love stuff like that. I mean, that kind of feels like the old school Frank Kennenlauter vibe that Gabe Bartolo's probably, you know, got a taste of working with Hennenlauter on things like uh, brain damage and, and stuff like that. Um, but well, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly why this scene is in the movies because that same exact scene is in Basket Case. So right. Gabe Bartolo's was just like, yo, I have no ideas. <laughs> Let's just go with this Basket Case shit. 
Yeah. Um, the movie starts off with a uh, some piece of human flesh getting branded uh, with the letters SD, which then turns into the title card of the movie. Uh, that branding, that was not a special effect. That was a real person getting branded. They just put an ad out at like a local, uh, I don't know, like, you know, BDSM forum and said, hey, is there anyone in Hollywood to be willing to get branded for a movie? And someone said, yeah, you can put the letters S and D on my skin. Kevin Moss <laughs> acting like he does not have a FetLife account. Come on, Kevin. <laughs> I've seen you on there talking about spider play. Yeah, well, hey, you know, we all got our kinks. But apparently this person's kink was to get branded on film and be immortalized in skin deep. But yeah, so overall, I mean, Warwick Davis is great in this, obviously. He's obviously the best actor in this and probably was, like I said, kind of working even though Warwick Davis, you know, obviously has been in some crap. I feel like he was really working below his pay grade in this movie. Um, but again, you know, I, I like this movie for the weirdness factor, you know, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that you've never seen before and probably will never see again. And the practical makeup effects and monster, uh, creature work in this, I think is, is very good. I just wish the movie, you know, like I said, was a little bit better made, um, and had a little bit more to it because these makeup effects and practical effects uh, are pretty great. But overall, it's a split for me. Um, you know, I'm not overall. I feel like I like this movie, but I didn't love it the way that I really wanted to. Uh, but what did you guys think of Skinned Deep? Yeah, I didn't know anything about this, and actually, I, I wanted to mention um, a couple more credits for this Gabe Bartolis guy because, man, this guy has an incredible list of credits to his name. Uh, but it does include Munchie Strikes Back. Uh, he designed the creature for that, uh, and also, if you ever rode the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios, I guess he did the T Rex in that. So, thought that was kind of neat, but. Yeah, really talented special effects artist, obviously, and and uh, clearly has good taste in movies based on you know what he's ripping off here. Um, but I, yeah, I, I didn't know anything about this. In fact, I didn't even look at the file name um, or anything you know before I put this on. So I, I was not clued into the fact that this was a 2004 movie when I first started it. And maybe I'm just a dummy, or or maybe you know it was late at night, and and you know maybe the the pixel quality is is low enough that uh, I can blame it on that. But I was kind of fooled for a bit, you know, as this was starting, maybe for the first five minutes or so, um, I was thinking that this was like a late 1980s thing um, in, until like the, um, you know, the credits come up and, and the, the fonts and, and like the fading of the font is clearly like digital and, and not like optical. Um, but still pretty impressive, you know, if in fact they were going for, um, a look that was like 20 years earlier and, and being able to pull it off like this. I think that was intentional and, and I think that they do achieve it um, pretty well. Um, and, you know, I, I think that may be um, to the movie's to the movie's kind of detriment in a way, like in terms of, um, you know, I, I like I said, I had never heard of this. And I think the reason is this this thing blends in on a shelf like the the title Skin Deep is kind of nondescript. The cover looks like some kind of nondescript like prism video VHS release from the 80s that you, you know, that you never gave the time of day to. And, you know, the visual look of itself, like you said, is not very uh, polished. And I think that is maybe a reason 
um, you know, why people don't seek this out. But I was kind of impressed as it started. You know, I, I was kind of digging this this 80s throwback vibe and, you know, feeling that it was not enough to carry the movie on its own, you know, and hoping that it would develop some kind of unique stuff. And, uh, you know, I feel like this does develop a, a lot of unique um, moments, you know, like there's all kinds of weird choices being made in this, you know, like um, the fact that I, I guess the family eats money or something like there's a, a scene at, in which she's like served a bowl of soup, which is like all human blood and body parts, which that makes sense. You would see that in like a Texas chainsaw, maybe. But also on the side is like a bunch of crumpled up dollar bills for her to eat or something. It's like a weird choice. And like the brain character, that's like such a weird choice in a movie like this. And he's got all this weird headgear that he's wearing. You know, he's got like this metal kind of armor thing that he wears on it at one point. And uh, that that old biker gang that you mentioned is such like a weird left turn. And, and you got that legitimately thrilling part where you got a, a shirtless old man from the biker gang being chased through a, a garden of cacti. And at least for me at home, I'm, you know, worried that this guy is going to trip and fall and get poked by one of these cacti. You know what I mean? Um, Warwick Davis's character is bizarre, you know, throwing the plates. Um, I thought, you know, he was having a lot of fun, it looked like, and I was having a lot of fun watching him. Um, you know, a lot of this is Texas Chainsaw, like you mentioned, like a lot of this especially in the way that they shoot this, there were multiple shots like over and over again, where it's like, Oh, that's, that's a very famous shot from Texas chainsaw that we all remember, you know, whether it was the dinner scene or, you know, the scenes of people being chased outside by the quasi leather face or just everything. It, it, uh, you know, it often felt almost exactly like a, a Texas chainsaw clone, but they were able to embellish it with all these weird little touches that I, I thought were cool. So, you know, even if it's not a perfect movie, you know, even if at times it feels like they're maybe using this throwback gimmick as kind of a convenient cover for the, for the fact that they've hired like non-professional actors who can't really get their dialogue right. You know, I was kind of fine with that. Um, I, I was less fine with the one moment in this where a character vomits directly into the camera lens. I thought that was maybe a little bit excessive and it probably could have been a little bit shorter. You know, it's like 140 or it's, it's an hour and 40 minutes. Um, and you, you know, this is probably better at like 90 minutes or, or something like that because it is, um, pretty derivative of, you know, a million movies was seen before. So you would think that they could get this done you know, in a little bit less runtime, but I, I don't know. Overall, I thought this was a lot of fun and I would be interested to rewatch this with friends or, you know, watch it in like a marathon setting or something like that. Um, more yeah. than more than anything, I think it gave me the, the urge to rewatch Texas Chainsaw, but still very fun. Yeah. It, it also made me, I, I want to see his follow-up movie, St. Bernard that he did after this, which I feel like he may be, was able to, um, maybe rectify some of the problems he had with this one, um, but keep you know the great practical effects. So maybe we'll watch that at some point. The other thing I wanted to mention real quick, I forgot to mention, this movie ends with one of the most annoying things I've probably ever seen, where over the the credits at the end of the movie, there's no music, only the lead actress screaming for two and a half minutes. 
just <laughs> screaming. No well, music. Again, just I screaming. think that's a Texas Chainsaw thing. That final shot of her screaming yeah. at camera, like that's a hundred percent for it. So, and I think yeah, there might even did. be like a single scream over the credits of Chainsaw, right? Or Chainsaw yeah. probably doesn't have end credits because it's so early. Right. Yeah, this this just felt like they just said, okay, here's the microphone. If you can just scream in this and say no for two and a half minutes, then we'll just play that as the audio over the credits. It's like, what the fuck? Anyway, Parker, what did you think of Skin Deep? Uh, I would be surprised if a lot of the people who watched this movie weren't just screaming during the end credits. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I agree more with you, Kevin, than than Sean. I I was intrigued by this because I like this guy's work, um, and I was not disappointed with some of the creatures. I like the guy's big brain, you know. I like some of the effects and stuff, but um, yeah, this is just like way too derivative. Like it's just Texas Chainsaw, and I mean, it came out a year or two after House of a Thousand Corpses and I feel like it's even more House of a Thousand Corpses than it is Texas Chainsaw like the the main well, bad... I don't think I don't think that was intentional I I would guess when they were making this House of a Thousand Corpses wasn't out I think it's just coincidence because both House of a Thousand Corpses and this are very much Texas Chainsaw ripoffs it could be I feel like the main guy is like very Dr. Satan-y though and there's like that a lot of that underground stuff, like very specifically seems like house of a thousand corpses, but it could just be coincidence. Um, but either way, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot of Texas chainsaw and not as good. Uh, uh clearly, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of like, Oh, you know, well, okay. Like you've taken Texas chainsaw and instead of all the goodness, you've replaced it with a dude with a big brain. I don't know how far that gets you in life. Um, well, I don't remember Texas chainsaw, the house having a super Nintendo anywhere. Man, that super Nintendo. That shouldn't have been there. Like, well, I guess maybe it should have actually, while you're watching this, as you guys pointed out, like it feels like this movie should have come out in 1992. Because A, it's an intentional throwback, and B, it's so poorly made that it looks older. Um, and so, yeah, when I was watching this, I was like, that Super Nintendo is too new to be in this dilapidated house. But I guess if this came out in 2004, then it would have been, you know, I guess believable as an old relic. Well, there's also no game in it. And the kid's trying to, like, get it to work. <laughs> it's like, son, there's no game in there. Should I mean, if you didn't have the budget for a game, at least get the original Nintendo. It's got the closed, you know, door. It, you'd be none the wiser. But a Super Nintendo, it's too obvious. That's true. That's the biggest failing of this film. I feel. Um, I like some of the old people. Like they were kind of fun to watch, I guess. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, pretty much everything you guys already said. Like it's, it's derivative and it should have been better it it was cool to see spooky's guy but yeah it 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 wore thin on me pretty quickly just because it doesn't really go anywhere i did like warwick davis i think the idea of a guy throwing plates is funny um but outside of that it's like kind of lazy they're like all right so you're gonna throw the plates like that's gonna be a cool thing and they're like all right we'll do it like warwick davis is like all right do i get like a cool brain or like cyborg body parts like everybody else and Gabe Bartalos was just like, no, nah, I'm just going to like throw some flour on you and we'll be done with it. 
And it's I'm like a, that's. I'm a little surprised that you guys were not more thrilled by the uh, the crazy level of gore in this movie. Like this is a pretty oh yeah gory movie. Like people are getting cut in half, heads are getting chopped off, and all of it looks looks really good. Totally. No, I said that I love the practical gore effects in this, especially. Again, spoiler alert, but the the old lady when she dies and like her face melts and like that green ooze. Yeah, that I love that awesome. lady. She looked yeah. like Ruth Norman from the uh, Uranus cult. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like when they cut the little kid in half long ways, like Conan oh, the yeah. Librarian. Yeah, and at first he didn't realize he he'd been cut. That was fun. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's got its moments. You know, like if someone were to cut together like a a scissor reel from this and put it on YouTube. That would be very fun to watch, but, uh, you know, we're living in a world where there's like nine different versions of Texas chainsaw. You know, it's like, I've, I've seen this, I've seen this movie before. Even you as a newspapers men weren't, you know, sold by the scene in which the room is covered in newspapers. I did like that, that room. I thought that was cool looking. Knew it. You got me. That's how I get you. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's worth a watch. I think if you're a fan of practical effects, uh, it's, it's definitely worth a watch if nothing else other for those, but yeah, go into it with the, you know, the right expectations. I think I went into this expecting this to be like an, like a new favorite. And while it didn't live up to that expectation, I still think it was worth a watch. Uh, so check out skin deep and especially now that it's got that sovereign Blu-ray. But I think that just about wraps it up for Skin Deep. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to cover the room in newspaper and just, you know, see what happens. So stick around. Tell your friends about junk food dinner. What for? What for? I hate them so much. What for? Nobody likes this crap. They're just pretending. I like David Lynch. Well, look at me. I got the most out-of-print records you ever saw in your life. Tell your friends. What for? What for? What for? Tell your friends about junk food dinner. Oh, that David Lynch. No one likes him. Oh, no. What for? Just before our newscast tonight, America's Most Wanted profiled violence from straight edge gangs in Salt Lake City. Police say one straight-edger responsible for terrorizing Utah mink farmers is already behind bars tonight. Here's the exclusive update to the capture of one of America's most wanted fugitives. Those who call themselves straight-edgers take a strong stand against what they consider many of society's ills, alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. Most are vegetarians or vegans and anti-fur. But straight-edge violence in Utah is gaining national attention. Salt Lake City, where straight-edge became hate-edge. The victims? Anyone who disagreed with the so-called poison-free lifestyle of straight-edge. Two straight-edgers profiled on America's Most Wanted are James Blackman and Adam Pease, both accused of releasing thousands of mink from Utah mink farms in 1996. Pease is accused of firebombing a fur store. But before tonight's episode even aired, police had Blackman in custody. They put together quite a bit of information in preparation for the America's Most Wanted, and some of that information panned out. They were able to pick up one of the individuals this morning. Police had information Blackman may have been in New Orleans and alerted Louisiana law enforcement. The vehicle that we believe was involved in, in the activities here in Utah 
was spotted there in front of the home early this morning and they went to the home and were able to arrest him there. Now police hope tips from tonight's show will lead them to the location of Adam Pease. The U.S. Marshal's offices are working very, uh, very hard to apprehend him and hopefully within a short time of that, with the, the program airing tonight, that he'd be in custody. James Blackman is charged with malicious mischief, burglary, and releasing of a fur-bearing animal, all felony counts. Today just happens to be Blackman's birthday. We are recording for the outro. All right, I think that about wraps it up for Junk Food Dinner this week. We want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, we want to thank everybody for calling in this week. Oh, wait, nobody called in this week? I, I got nobody to, to thank in that department then. Well, you can fix that. You can call us uh, between now and next episode, and we will air it on the show. That's a guarantee. Uh, call us at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Get your voice heard on the show. Uh, you can yeah. also... Wish Parker a happy 40th birthday. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I mean, this, this is a momentous occasion in, in our baby boy Bowman's life. Let's, let's wish him well. If calling us seems like too much effort, you can also send us an email at jfdpodcast at gmail.com. Or look us up on the social medias, including our Facebook, which has that handy-dandy call-now button. Uh, next week's episode should be a fun one. Uh, JFD 598. Wow, we're, we're getting close to that 600. Uh, but 598 is going to be another short films week with three Christmas-themed short programs, I, I guess. I'm not really short films, all of them. But uh, we got the Glow Friends Save Christmas from 1996. We've got the true meaning of Christmas specials from 2002. And of course, we got Siskel and Ebert's 1987 Holiday Gift Guide uh, from 1987. Uh, so that should be a lot of fun. Um, tune in for that um, between now and then. Do all the things I said before. And also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash dinner, Or go to our website, junkfooddinner.com to get links to all this stuff. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. So, uh, between now and then, uh, that's all. This is your friend, uh, Sam Byro, for your other two friends, uh, Kelvin Moose and Perky Beantown Bowman, saying keep washing them dishes. The fun may be over for potential arcade owners in Bountiful. Three new restrictions for operating businesses with pinball or video machines were proposed this week by the police chief and city attorney. The proposals include limiting the number of machines per establishment to four, increasing the licensing fee to $25 per machine, and prohibiting arcades near public schools from opening until an hour after school lets out. I don't have a seventh period, so I come down here. Do you ever leave during classes to come down? Uh -uh. We try to create a, a wholesome atmosphere. Uh, we've tried to bring in families. Uh, we're trying to bring the kids in off the street. City Attorney Lane Forbes says he's received calls from angry parents, and that's the reason for the tighter restrictions. We and the police department have, and various of the council, have received a, 
quite a number of complaints uh, from uh, residents, neighbors, parents in the community indicating their concern concerning the uh, rather rapid increase of amusement devices. The Bountiful City Council will begin discussing proposed changes on Wednesday. And if you don't like getting yourself caught in a tangle, though, between city attorneys, city councils, and arcade owners just to play a silly game, well, you can buy yourself one of these. You can play this anytime you want. Ron Futrell, 4 News. Who's the best bowman of all time? 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 Who You love those screams.